0: Another episode of Failure Piece Theater. It is your amiable co-host, Tim. And with me as always is...
1: Catherine.
0: My sister. So we are here to talk today about Danny Boyle's 2007 film, Sunshine. A critically beloved but unfortunate box office failure. Very sad. So, very sad. Uh, This is going to be a really easy movie to talk about because it's a good movie but we will undoubtedly address some of the things that might have kept people out of the theater, but um, you know, why it's certainly worth a rewatch now. So uh, let's, yeah, for sure. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about what we've been watching, just uh, you know our current plate, uh, apart from revisiting these films. Uh, so what have you been up to here lately? Anything grabbing your attention these days?
1: Oh, Lord, I've been stuck in the land of trashy YouTube videos. I... I haven't watched anything like worthwhile this week. Um, which is it always makes me feel bad. I'm like, ugh. I should watch something <laughs> better than just nasty YouTube videos. But I have been watching uh. um a couple of channels which are of note. Uh I don't know if you've ever watched Nerdforge before. Um
0: maybe that sounds kind of familiar she's
1: she's really cool she has purple hair she makes cool stuff out of resin and leather and she makes all kinds of geeky projects um i love her youtube channel so shout out to nerdforge
0: cool yeah that's that's fantastic um i actually have i've been off this week so i actually have had a decent amount of time to you know watch catch up on a few things um so, you know, the buzz this week has been about Netflix's The Old Guard, uh, a new Charlie's Theron actioner that just came out based on a, a really cool Greg Rucka comic that uh, I have a few issues of from, from way back. It's, it's a fairly old series now, although it is still ongoing, apparently. But uh, so I uh, got to watch that with my wife and really enjoyed it. Um, pretty unequivocal rep- recommendation. I think it's it's a solid film, especially for... You know, Netflix occasionally tries to step up its game and really sort of have big tentpole things that they like people to watch yeah. as apart from the regular you know thoroughfare of mediocre material that they license or produce and this is definitely in that upper tier right it reminds me a little bit more of you know uh, the recent uh, extraction films Frank Chris Hemsworth bright even though you know bright is very problematic it's that level of material that they're trying to produce and great story um, Good action all the way through, just a, a really solid flick. So we enjoyed that. Um, also, watched another Greg Rucka property, uh, ABC's Stump Town TV show. Um, really didn't know much about it. Got into it because of uh, Jake Johnson, who my wife and I both really love, and pretty much every project he's ever done. So we, we started watching it because of him, and uh, then we're pleasantly surprised that it's it's just a really great series. Great writing, good That's- detective procedural. Great balance of main story, you know, your A story, B story uh, stuff every season, every episode. It was it was really good, so we enjoyed that too. Nice. And then the one that I was going to uh, sort of ask you about, see if you had had a chance to see it yet, is uh, Birds of Prey or the Emancipation of One Harley Quinn. No. Yeah, uh, I had not been anxious to see this one, mostly because of its direct connection to. Suicide Squad. Uh, I have zero beef with Margot Robbie. Uh, I think her take on Harley Quinn is fine, but it is unfortunately sullied by its innate connection to a version of the Joker that I I simply cannot stand, uh, which is Jared Leto's version of the Joker from the Suicide Squad film. Um, I see what he was doing. I understand what they were going for. I did not care for it. (laughs) <laughs> um. so unfortunately you know whatever positive qualities about harley for her are sort of tainted by its connection to that character um face tattoos and everything you know
1: i um uh, <clears throat> i don't i, I don't know I, I we just got around to watching joker i'm gonna be honest mm, um because mm-hmm. i just I just peaced out. I don't know. And mentally I just peace out from movies every once in a while. Um <laughs> and Joker came out and we just skipped it cuz I, I don't know. I don't always feel like seeing Joaquin Phoenix do what he does in movies. I'm just not always in the mood. Um but I watched it and I, I actually did enjoy it, but I I was surprised at how Batman forward it was. I didn't think the Waynes mm-hmm. would be in it at all.
0: Yeah, I think that was a surprise for a lot of people. They seem to distance themselves from the entire Batman thing so exclusively and just be this focused story and then you kind of get sideswiped with it about halfway through.
1: And I I think I would have liked it more if it had not had any Batman things in it. Sure. If it had just cuz I don't know, I'm very sensitive and what I'm getting at is that I also don't like Jared Leto's portrayal of the Joker. Um did anyone <laughs> is there a, are there people I'm, who are big fans?
0: From what I, I understand, most of them shop at Hot Topic. Oh, and uh, and they do find some some things to appreciate. I, I rewatched Suicide Squad after Harley Quinn um, or Birds of Prey, whatever the official title is now. They changed it while it was in the theater, um, and he is not in that movie, which yeah. is the other funny thing. He's really only in it. He's got maybe five or six. Maybe, well, six to ten scenes. Most of them, you know, two to three minutes tops. The There are a couple of scenes between him and Harley that are good. It's really just them, so it's it's kind of okay. Um, but most of it is just him sneering or attempting to breathe through whatever, whatever uh, teeth prosthetics he is wearing. Because he seems to legitimately have problems keeping his mouth closed. Um, which is, I know is the point, it's the Joker, right? I get it, but uh, it, it becomes a barrier to understanding him at a certain point, which I don't know is, is the idea. Uh, and, and he's not, he's just not in it. So I don't, you know, I, I don't know if it's really a, a legitimate beef to just say, oh, you know, I hate the movie because of the Joker representation, cause he's really not that big of a part of it. But at the same time, it's it's also not the, a very good movie. It isn't, and that's not necessarily Jared Leto's fault. No, right? I it's mean, just the not the movie. A good movie. That yeah, it, it just there were some core things of that, that that, from the ground up, were sort of bad takes. Um, on, We've got on three characters. good
1: Batman movies, and we do. Christopher Nolan made two of them.
0: <laughs> he did indeed. And the nineteen eighty
1: nine Batman, and you just walk away. You take what you can get.
0: You know, that's true. Three good
1: that's Batman true. movies. I'm satisfied. I can die happy.
0: Yeah, that's not bad. You can revisit them every once in a while and they stand the test of time.
1: I guess for me, like the Harley Quinn thing, I'm, I'm a huge, I mean, you know how much I love Batman. Yes. You know, my, my bathroom decor, all the comic books, all the stuff. Um, I just don't, I don't get the fascination with Harley Quinn as a character and like making her this kind of sympathetic character.
0: Yeah, and I the like. film does the film does struggle with that openly, right? That's one of the core conflicts of the film, is that they have positioned her within the DC universe as being a hero, but she is a villain. Yeah. So what do you do with that? And and the movie attempts to tackle it and it does some funny things with that idea, that concept. It's not quite as blatant as her like breaking a department store window in Suicide Squad and saying, like, that's what we do. You know, it's not that. It's a little bit more nuanced, thankfully, but the film really does have a hard time, right? I mean, it's it's the same problem that ostensibly Joker has, right? He's the bad guy. You shouldn't really identify with him, but yet he is also the central protagonist of that film. So you simply amplify that he is somehow less bad than these other people, right? Like he's less bad than Thomas Wayne somehow. Yeah. Um, and that's how you sort of position them, and that's kind of what they do with Harley Quinn here, right? She's bad, but she's not as bad as the people that she is trying to kill or escape or whatever.
1: I just don't necessarily think this villain revisionism has as much depth to it as... as- the purveyors of fine t shirts might believe it does
0: <laughs> sure it's um, it's hard you know it it's a difficult position to be in and and they've done this in the comics too. I mean, I don't want to make it seem like the film universes are the only ones that are trying to do this with harley quinn they have they have flipped her character many times into you know a more heroic version of herself, and I'm fine with that i mean if you write a storyline well and you justify why the character's doing what they're doing. You know, go ahead. I mean, there's. I'm not going to stand back and be like, Dutch, not who Harley Quinn is. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fictional character in a universe populated by thousands of different heroes with thousands of different populations and and revisions of those characters. Do what you want. Uh, just can you make that version work? That's just, that's the difference between
1: it, between know? the two of us and the majority of let's say gamers
0: who sure. would
1: say I. Am kept up at night by the decisions you made in your independent work of fiction.
0: <laughs> That's true. You've ruined my life. My childhood is over. <laughs> You've
1: destroyed uh, my dreams.
0: <laughs> yeah, my, uh, my perception of reality is now tainted. I can no longer look out onto the, the sunset and see it in any other way that is but pain. Yeah, I, I, I agree. There Gaming are some people who do 22. take to that. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, most discourse 2020. Yeah. Well, if we could really say gaming, but I think there will be books written at some point that uh, GamerGate was where most of this started, as far as people feeling or utilizing social media to to do this kind of stuff. But uh, in any case, I mean, just as a a very simple, you know, walk over it review. I I was surprised by Birds of Prey. I think it does a lot of things. Very well, uh, Ewan McGregor gets three or four really great freakouts, uh, which are always fun. You know, uh, ever since Train Spotting, I've enjoyed myself a good f-bomb fueled Ewan McGregor freakout, and we get a couple of those in this movie, so that's good. Um, a pretty decent version of Victor zazz All Things Considered. It Christmas Cena. It is indeed Christmasy I can't see that. Siles. Like, I just have a hard time seeing. They that. they really close cut his hair and then they blonded it. Oh, oh, that's it, alarming. Um, <laughs> he looked well. Another train spotting. He looks a lot like Sick Boy from Train Spotting. If we're being honest. Wow. wow, it's in that that world because um, the the film has a real early nineties vibe intentionally, right? Both both in terms of its decor the general presentation like they are firmly in 1992 ish territory here and so they're they're kind of treading in that and then uh, i i do wish i mean as much as we've complained already on this show about this the overall sameness of the mcu i kind of wish somebody would put their foot down about what gotham should look like <laughs> I really <Yeah>. do <laughs> because nobody seems to have a clear representation of gotham like they're more than happy to put a sign in the back with CG that says, oh, here's Ace Chemicals, you know, whatever. <laughs> <Okay>. Again. <laughs> Great. Fantastic. But the it felt, in a lot of situations, just by lighting and, and you know, everything's kind of sweaty. You know, it feels more like Miami. Right? And I'm like, this is a... a gotham is at least in the dc universe that i understand is supposed to be like a midwestern city right it's like you're, you're chicago. chicago right like metropolis is new york, is new york <laughs> gotham is chicago right Duh. crime ridden and, and terrible it's why chris nolan shot it in chicago when he made batman begin you know like I, i've always understood it to be that way and this doesn't it didn't feel like the city streets of something like that to me
1: yeah um, everybody should be wearing puffer coats not
0: halter tops and again, I it's it's a small complaint, uh, you know, and it's probably more just my perception. But I again, Gotham is such a unique space within comics. You know, it has this sort of gothic quality to it, hence the name. I'm gonna, and I'm gonna throw it out and there. It Tim
1: Burton did a really great
0: job. Right, Tim Burton de- definitely grabbed that. Harder than most other directors
1: Man, I can't have. even believe I just said that. I feel kind of
0: gross. Isn't that? Yeah, it doesn't. It feels like a strange admission to be like, really? oh, Tim Burton did it right. It's like, what? Is the
1: the possible? Tim Burton twisty door frames and crooked houses actually worked for once. Why is, <laughs> why
0: is everything tilted to the
1: left? I don't understand. Oh, I understand. Um,
0: I mean, speaking of Joker, that was actually, I thought that was pretty good. I mean, they basically just made the decision to do like 1982 New York, but they stuck to it. And, and that it felt looked am-
1: nice it, it was did it really was really nice. well
0: done yeah the, the exteriors are really well done a lot of cg extension that was very subtle but you know increased the scale of the city the sort of scope of it to make it feel like this huge metroplex which again we didn't really get a lot of here um i don't know but it, i think it's worth watching i really do um kathy yan uh, did a great job directing there's a ton of representation in this film that's handled super well The Birds of Prey themselves, uh, well cast. Uh, I I feel bad for Mary Elizabeth Winstead because she got ripped for this movie. She looks amazing in this film. And I think 60% of her part wound up on the cutting room floor. Like she's just not in this movie and it's to its detriment. Um, And I don't know why, right? Because she obviously worked really hard to both physically prepare for the film and bring her a game in terms of this character that she was trying to build. Cause she plays the huntress and it just doesn't, she just doesn't get much screen time. And I was like, wow, <laughs> what happened? It, it feel, much like most of these, I guess most of these recent, uh, DC movies, it feels meddled with, you know, somebody was making decisions on the back end and, and stuff got lost, especially again, you can always tell with these movies, uh, the third act is just a mess. You know They're rushing, they have action set pieces that they have already decided need to exist and have already pre you know, built in pre-production or whatever and they are rushing to get to them and the story just kind of becomes secondary and now it's like, oh, we're fighting in a fun house because we built a fun house. Because it's Harley
1: Quinn, got it. it?
0: That's right, it's uh, it's Hilaire with Mr. J, right? <laughs> it's like, oh, um, <laughs> the number of times she refers to the Joker as Puddin' in this is uncomfortable. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah i don't know, I don't know. Yeah, like I love, I love cartoon harley yeah. so much and and a right. game and harley
0: mm, yeah game harley's pretty good from the arkham series definitely and i think that's part of it is like it's hard for me to think of harley quinn as anything other than the the cartoon version of her because that's where the character originated right
1: She's, say good night mr b man <laughs> like, that's just right. that yeah. iconic voice i just love it's her it's
0: really really cool and the animated series is just it's so we could have a whole series of episodes talking about how great that that animated series uh, was and is to this day but so in any case uh, you know i i got i watched it uh, i think it was very good it's certainly worth a run through if you've got a, a stray afternoon but uh but again most of these dc movies they're just kind of all over the place right now they don't kind of feels a little bit like hulk when we talked about it. it's kind of yeah. the wild west for them they just don't know what they want to do as a unit and so they're kind of letting people take their own stab and then just kind of seeing what hits right what works and then they're going to try and push in that direction it feels like they're they're really hanging a lot on uh, James Gunn's version of Suicide Squad I think they're really hoping that that's going to push them in some kind of direction that's positive positive. and if anybody can do it Gunn probably can because um, if he made the Guardians of the Galaxy relevant to the Marvel Universe that's a pretty big accomplishment.
1: Uh, I don't know. For me, it depends on the
0: script. Oh, sure. Definitely.
1: But I'll give it a shot. But anyway. Shot.
0: Oh, yeah. I'll definitely give anything Gun does at this point. I, I try to give a shot, even if I'm not terrifically interested in the premise. Uh, all right. Well, I guess that takes us to, unless you had anything else to discuss, I guess that takes us to our main topic of discussion today.
1: Yes. Sunshine. And that is,
0: of course, sunshine. Right? So because we can talk a little bit about our history with this film. Um, We were both pretty hyped for it on its way out. Um, Like most people, uh, we were introduced to Danny Boyle um, with Trainspotting, his independent production uh, that launched the careers of Ewan McGregor. And, uh, oh, the guy who's on elementary now, Johnny Miller, right? Among many other people. Um, uh, A fantastic and disturbing and somewhat disgusting look at drug addicts in the uh, late 2000s, brilliantly acted, brilliantly shot, uh, some very iconic scenes that were parodied and replicated over and over again, but really uh, Danny Boyle then rocketed to international success with the film that many people, including myself, credit with the complete revitalization of the zombie franchise or the zombie genre of filmmaking, and that of course is twenty eight days later. Yes. Um which twenty days later in Sunshine share a lead actor in Killian Murphy.
1: Beautiful blue eyes, Celine Murphy.
0: <laughs> and and they are exploited in this film. They are all over the place. But, um, um but so 20 Days Later is where, he, you know, he makes his name and then basically gets his pick of Project. And uh, he does one more film before this one, but then this is where he goes next. What were you going to say?
1: This was kind of, well, I was just going to add that um, I liked Train Spotting. Um, I remember when we watched it awkwardly, um, my parents yeah, it's one of like, those movies. this is why you don't do drugs. And, yeah. and I didn't do drugs. So that's, you know, it was an effective teaching tool. Thanks,
0: Danny Boyle.
1: Um, I hope he knows that. You got through to one kid in Missouri. (laughs) Um, But uh, 28 Days Later was one of those revolutionary things because when it came along, I mean, that was... I was young, but that was like the height of my zombie adoration because it was pretty early on Mm -hmm. in the horror movie revival of the early 2000s. And uh, that was the movie where I... I put two and two together that it was the same director, but it was where he kind of became a director that I wanted to
0: follow after that. So
1: 28 Days Later was really big for me.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, it, was, it was a huge movie. Um, it was shot, because it was also shot in a really intelligent way that fit the storytelling. It was mostly guerrilla style, handheld cameras. Uh, early days of digital video production. Uh, where they were actually shooting on DV cameras, not yeah, digital cameras. Yeah, they had cameras. the DV
1: cameras up on the street lamp- lamps and stuff to film the downtown mm-hmm. London scenes.
0: It, you know, it mm-hmm. was famous for its, its. Um, he crosses the bridge by parliaments, and it's empty because they got out there at like 4.30 in the morning and filmed for 15 minutes right yeah. as the sun was coming up so that they could get it before traffic. And, you know, made a lot of really cool choices and did a lot of really cool things. And again, there's kind of the one-two punch in this era. We get 28 Days Later and then we get the Dawn of the Dead remake, which both of those kind of together kind of kicked off. Oh, hey, zombies. Zombies are and cool. Zombies zombies are good again? Okay,
1: cool. And well, then all of us with the Army of Darkness t-shirts were like, yes, yeah. our moment has come.
0: <laughs> yeah, they were always cool. It never really stopped. You guys just stopped paying attention. You know, the zombie genre never really went away, right? There were always no. independent zombie it was, projects. It was being relegated made, to video know. rentals. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, it was just these low-budget productions that nobody paid attention to. But these were the films that came out that caused Hollywood to say, oh, yeah. you know, like Walking Dead wouldn't be a thing without these no. movies. Apart God. from the fact that Walking Dead, uh, Robert Kirkman is regularly accused of plagiarizing 28 Days Later. Because the protagonist of Twenty Eight Days Day Later also awakens in an intensive care unit of a hospital ward, coming out of a coma has no idea what's going on, and then is reintroduced to a world that is now filled with zombies. Um, Kirkman swears that he had written that years before Twenty Eight Days Later came out, which I, I don't doubt. I mean, it's a pretty decent starting point if you're trying to sort of introduce us to a post-apocalypse. It allows that you to explain quickly. everything. Right. You've got the exposition dump character that needs information, like whatever. I'm not gonna fight him on that, but it, it is a very similar premise. But I, I don't think we would have, you know, things like The Walking Dead that are now institutions in media, uh, if it's not for these, you know, these films being successful. Uh you don't get your elevator pitch, oh it's 28 days later, but in the American South. You yeah. know? Like you don't you don't get to say that without twenty-eight days later's existence. Uh so Boyle is behind that, and he is an incredibly creative filmmaker very adaptable he can pretty much work in any genre or style uh the most recent film that i watched of his was 28 uh uh, yesterday uh, which was ostensibly a sort of high concept rom-com but very well executed and uh highly enjoyable he's done more just pure dramatic work. Obviously, he got a lot of Oscar attention for a film that he did after Sunshine called Slumdog Millionaire, which is um, problematic on many levels. Right? There is, but um, you know, he he's shown that he is interested in lots of different types of film, and he's capable of executing in a bunch of different worlds, basically. And so, Sunshine is a very different film from 28 days later uh and definitely a different film from millions which was the movie that he made right before this about yeah, very different. A little kid who finds a bunch of money um but sunshine is is really unique property you know we we've if you haven't dear listener figured out we are huge sci-fi fans here at failure peace theater we spend a lot of our time and energy thinking about science fiction and absorbing science fiction writing science fiction mm-hmm. and um sunshine is is a rare piece of cinema that is at least trying to be what we would consider hard sci-fi right
1: very along the lines of like solaris
0: right uh the films that are often cited as the standalongs with sunshine are things like 2001 which i think is a that's a lofty comparison. Two thousand one is is. <laughs>
1: That's unfair. <laughs> it's
0: unfair to say that it has to be like that movie because that movie is is a masterpiece on pretty much every level. Um, it's it's nigh unwatchable for a modern user. Like if yeah. if you sit down and try and watch that with like a fifteen year old, you have now, to have a purpose. <laughs> yeah, like they're gonna be like, what are we doing? <laughs> I taught film, it's, and I it's didn't glorious.
1: Even, I didn't even teach any Kubrick because I'm like, you know what? If you like Stanley Kubrick. You just let me know and we could talk about it sometime.
0: Right. It's it's just it's a very different film. But uh two thousand one, uh Solaris, both the uh original Solaris and the remake of Solaris, which unfortunately had come out a few years before this and was George also, Clooney in there. It was a George Clooney joint. Like he did everything. He produced that movie, oh, he starred God. in that movie. Uh Soderbergh directed it though. Oh, <laughs> um, but it's, again, Solaris is another one that you kind of don't want to be compared to Solaris because Solaris is such a unique thing. Yeah. Such a, a weird moment in cinematic history from a Russian director that did some incredible work. I mean, yes. like, absolutely incredible stuff. So, again, you know, it, those are the ones that are usually sort of hung out with this one. But those are films I,
1: that have problems of their own. And they're sure. still lauded as being, you know, incredible works. Right.
0: And Sunshine is one, you know, obviously here on Failure Peace Theater, we're looking at failures, films that did not achieve what they might have been able to achieve um, in their time. And so with Sunshine, we're not really looking at much of a critical failure. Most critics really liked this movie. There were some, some standouts that didn't for some pretty typical reasons across most of them from what I saw. But where this film failed was in box office. Nobody saw this thing uh, when it came out. And whatever fame it has developed has absolutely been in the home media market after the fact. That is where people have discovered this movie because they certainly didn't go see it in the theater.
2: Um,
0: And and that unfortunately is true of a lot of hard sci-fi, right? The biggest swing, I would say, at hard sci-fi in recent memory came from Christopher Nolan with Interstellar um and and, that and
1: really i mean that took people weeping on camera as far as it could to put butts in seats like this is a big dramatic picture like it pushed the human drama as i mean further than this movie ever thought about pushing it and i think that helped sell interstellar a little bit
0: yeah christopher nolan seems to have this ability to to drive big idea movies right movies with big ideas in them to sort of popular response and and i think that you know one of the problems with sunshine was a failure of marketing right and i think christopher nolan now occupies this space really i would say because of inception and the unbelievable success of inception when nobody expected it like inception was the movie they let him do so that he would make another Batman movie like that's why Inception exists because Christopher Nolan when he arranges his contracts is very smart. He says, OK, I'm your I will make your Batman movie and it will be very good.
1: Then I want but to then, make 12 pictures of my own. But then I get
0: to go make my movie and I get to get however much money I want and you don't get to say anything. And then the studios do that and he runs off and he makes an Inception. Right. And so Interstellar was another one of those where it's like I made your Batman movies i'm gonna make your other big movie i'm gonna go make this movie first and so that's you know sort of the, one of the more recent swings at big idea cinema and you know in smaller sci-fi we've got lots of people dealing with hard sci-fi concepts pretty much constantly there's a really good one you can probably still find on netflix called europa report mm-hmm. uh there's really good very small budget excellently acted charlotte charlotte Copley
1: Copley. oh my gosh kills it him. in that
0: movie um it, it's really good, but it's it's not on this scale, right? Like, there was not tons of money being pumped into that. It's not Interstellar and streaming money, was Interstellar not was, like,
1: 60 months. Streaming no. was, was very mm-hmm. new then. You know, there was no, like, direct-to-Netflix option that I think a, a film like this actually would have done really well having used, like, if there had been a way to just market this on a streaming platform. I think that would have helped it in its reception a little bit.
0: I think so. I, I really feel like this is a film. I, I think it still could have had its theatrical release for sure. Um, and I guess we can talk about that a little bit because that's basically what now happens to all of the writer of this film, Alex Garland. Yeah. So that's what happens to all of his movies because his movies are ones, uh, not all, but he definitely had another kind of big swing at ideas, science fiction. Uh, with Annihilation, which Mm -hmm. that's exactly what happened to it. It was released theatrically um, here and then released on Netflix to direct overseas uh, and then eventually wound up on Netflix over here. But, you know, but nobody went to see it, right? So, I mean, like, we have this weird disconnect where, um, you know, hard sci-fi just doesn't do well theatrically here in the United States very often, Interstellar being the sort of rare instance but again you also have a tremendous amount of money star power and marketing behind that um and i, I have issues with interstellar as a storytelling vehicle in and of too. itself <laughs> uh i i find it a very watchable film uh even uh, i watched it with my daughter not too long ago and and she you know she's uh, 11 but she really enjoyed it right the the sort of core familial drama was enough to weave the film together for her so that those big ideas were able to sort of stick and resonate and i think that that's how it was designed but it doesn't always really work
1: it's it did not resonate with me um sure i when i saw it i i I might have had too high of expectations um when i finally saw it the drama fell very flat for me sure Um, and I was I was coming off of this Matthew McConaughey high because true detective and mm. you know, his performance in that is just so much um very, very emotional and very engaging that Interstellar just felt kinda like, oh, overload. Like I've had enough of it. the drama sure. and the crying. Um and I didn't find myself very sympathetic <clears throat> toward the characters. And I hate Anne Hathaways entire existence i just can't stand her <laughs> she's she is
0: she is saddled with some pretty unfortunate lines and ideas in that film uh, very much so all right well let's let's focus it on sunshine because we've got a lot to talk about i i am sure uh so in terms of its rotten tomato score something we always like to visit as just a general gauge of people's reaction the the general response to this film, both critically and from audiences, according to Rotten Tomatoes, is pretty positive. Right, we've got seventy-six percent uh, from critics and seventy-three percent from the audience. So again, a lot of parity there. Not perfect, right? Definitely not universally praised, but on the high side, right? Still certified fresh from our friends at Rotten Tomatoes. So, you know, at the time, for a bit, you know, a decently budgeted sci-fi film, that's pretty good reviews, all things considered. Uh, So a couple of the reviews that I I pulled uh, first, Bob Mondello from NPR said, nothing anyone does makes much sense, but gad, is it ever gorgeous, right? And this was pretty universal. One of the most common things praised about this film is how good it looks, Uh, which we will absolutely talk about. I 100% agree. It is a gorgeous film. It is shot beautifully, despite the fact that the vast majority of it is undoubtedly blue screen soundstage, Um, but they work a tremendous amount with that Um, it very much evokes things like alien in that it feels like a real ship that would be designed right this is not yes you know you have to crouch in the hallways the lighting is not great it feels like a submarine right like like a real piece of deep space technology Which, you know, we've had some, you know, big swings at hard sci-fi as well with, like, The Martian, right? Which is a great movie. I love The Martian. That's a good movie. But the Martian's, you know, main ship for getting them from point A to point B, they, like, have treadmills and they spin around in big circles and they've got microwaves. And, you know, all of these, like, very modern conveniences that don't necessarily evoke this same sense of, deep space claustrophobia yeah. that would probably exist if we were building these things for real. Uh, just the design of the Icarus itself is, is beautiful and um, obviously had some input from people who would, you know, have opinions about things like this.
1: And despite all the bad science, there were a lot of consultants there to help keep the vibe of a fairly realistic environment. Um, right, and
0: that's one thing that we will definitely sort of get into is that Garland, as a screenwriter... Loves bouncing off of hard sci-fi ideas, but he never builds his story completely around those hard sci-fi ideas They're quite literally thought experiments that kick him off and you can see this in Sunshine for Sure, which is really about The concept of the heat death of the universe, you know, what if the sun starts to go cold? What's going to happen to us? What's going to happen to the people who might be tasked to try and fix it if that was possible? How could we do that? Right? You can just see the thought experiment, the what-if experiment running behind it. Deus Ex Machina, you know, Garland's other sort of big piece of, you know, know, high concept, big sci-fi, same thing. You know, what if an artificial intelligence... Did these things, and how would you know that it was artificial intelligence, and how would you figure that out? Um, and then, annihilation, of course, you know, what if something truly alien and foreign, completely unknowable to us, encountered us? How would we change, right? Big, cool sci fi ideas doesn't really care about landing those sci fi ideas or right. figuring them out or solving them. Not really his concern. And so, a lot of people who love sci fi don't like Alex Garland for that reason. But, you know, regardless, this film looks beautiful, especially its representations of the planets and the sun. Yes. Uh, very, very beautifully done. So that was a pretty common positive, right? The film looks great. Uh, doesn't make a ton of sense. Again, we'll talk about the sensibility of it. I don't think it's necessarily impossible to understand. It's not dense. It's not complicated um, in any real way. But that's a pretty common theme, too. Uh, so, uh From the Boston Phoenix, we have, unlike the films of Kubrick, Tarkovsky, and Scott, Sunshine is empty of ideas, so Boyle fills the void with sound. (laughs) Which is a a nice sort of backwards sound and fury complaint, I guess. Um, Again, we see the people that that this film was lined up against, Kubrick, Tarkovsky with Solaris, and then Ridley Scott with Alien.
1: I just, I'm I'm sorry, I just... They're Saying that about Ridley Scott, that's really funny.
0: Well, we, we're we looking at it through <laughs> this the, is pre Prometheus, so this I'm, is, I'm just yeah, like, we're wow. looking at it through a very different lens. <laughs> My, I would say the
1: world has changed
0: post the counselors. Ridley Scott, where he mm. truly was like, Yeah, we're done here. Uh-huh. Um, all right, Richard Nilsson from the Arizona Republic. Uh, Other movies may explore the depths of outer space, this movie explores the shallows. So, a nice burn, good slug. Um But that was another common complaint, that the movie doesn't have any depth, which, again, depth is very... There's a lot of ways you can interpret depth in terms of what you're looking for. I think if they're detecting that the film lacks depth or feels shallow, a lot of that probably has to do with... There is not a ton of deep character work going on here. Um, There is character work, don't get me wrong. But it is very much in service of getting them from point A to point B. Yeah, we have right? two
1: hours, and we need to explain all this stuff.
0: <laughs> right. And, you know, it, it tries to give us some moments with the characters. I, I do love that Danny Boyle and Alex Garland with his script, they they build in moments of quiet, moments of repose, where you can just sort of sink in and and experience the thing rather than being constantly pushed forward in the story, which I think is a really good thing. But at the same time a lot of these characters don't really get a ton of development, right? They, they really just are there to serve a function, and then once that function is served, they exit the film. Uh, in really cool, beautiful, sometimes terrifying ways, but still. Um, and then uh, Claudia Puig from USA Today said, The pressure to save mankind is enormous, and our attention grows as the tension mounts. Light is used in haunting and powerful ways, but as the film ultimately deviates from its course, the entire undertaking suffers. So a kind of half-hearted from her, but she too sort of echoes a lot of the same complaints. Doesn't really land, kind of gets lost, um, and and ultimately isn't super satisfying Mm. as a film experience. So those are the common problems. Uh, Bad science, which we can talk about a little bit, um, although I don't want to get too mired down in the bad science of the the show because that's not really the point. Uh, That it's beautiful, but shallow, lacking any real sort of depth. don't know if that's emotional depth or scientific depth, but depth. And uh, some people straight up called the movie nonsense, that it just is noise, and that the third act takes a huge switch in tone and that that kind of derails everything Um, which was a complaint that i remember hearing extensively at the time even as i was sort of telling people hey sunshine's worth your time there were a lot of people both that i knew personally and of course in the critical realm that were like the third act of this movie is broken and doesn't work Um, so we can certainly get there too so i guess let's dive in sort of with those contexts in mind and let's uh, sort of summarize Sunshine. Uh, again, the the base concept of the film is pretty high concept. I, I think there was even an article where Garland said he was reading, you know, a scientific magazine. And they were discussing, you know, the, the eventual death of the sun and what that would be and how it would happen. And he was just sort of struck with, well, what if we could stop it, right? And then that's kind of where the idea for the... Uh, the film came from. but So what is the premise of Sunshine? What are we doing?
1: Uh, We follow the crew of a spaceship as they make their way toward the sun. Uh, Strapped to the back of a spaceship is a bomb that they're going to fire into the core of the sun, I know, um, Uh and attempt to restart it and rekindle I guess the fire in the sun. It's more metaphoric. Than scientific, really.
0: Right. Um, yeah, the idea is that our sun is prematurely weakening, right? Yeah. We know at some point all suns eventually use up the the material that drives them, and they go dark.
1: Everything dies.
0: And then collapse in on themselves. And this is happening and,
1: prematurely for us. And we, right.
0: Which is unexplained. They make no attempt to justify what is happening. It just is happening.
1: Yeah, and, and that's... That's one thing that I guess I don't mind in science fiction, I guess because I always keep the word fiction in my head, <laughs> that
0: it's not no, it's, its not science fiction reality.
1: Um, that this is a fiction that has some, you know, uh-huh. holdings of science in it. <laughs> like it's, not, it's not that it's very scientific. Um, but the, one of the things that's sort of essential to the story is that we've already tried to restart the sun one time, and that mission failed. Right. This is the crew of the Icarus
0: 2. Yes. Um, The Icarus 1 was lost, all communication was severed, and they've been gone for some seven years. So this is quite literally the last desperate attempt. I guess it's, I don't know if anybody ever states it specifically, but it's heavily implied that this is the last shot. Right there, Yeah, well, they, they not do say, Kappa left. does
1: say they have mined all of the natural resources available to create the bomb. Gotcha,
0: that's right. Um, so this is it, right? If this fails, if this doesn't work, it's over. They don't have another chance, and the Earth is going to die. So there's a ton of pressure, right? As, as Puig mentioned in her review, like this, this tension that's created from this drive to quite literally save all of humanity... Is is core and central to the film, and it drives a lot of the anxieties of the characters. Right, everybody knows the weight that is sitting on them, and and it drives their decision making. Right, and and later there's a crucial deci- crucial decision that needs to be made that um, is also driven by this well. We might be able to better ensure if we have this other thing, and so uh, we have this small crew who have already been traveling at this point for, what's it been, two years?
1: <laughs> two or three years, yeah.
0: Yeah, something like that. Like They are are almost done with their journey at this point. They have already been cooped up on this ship together for years, right? So they are close-knit, they know each other well, but it has been a fairly mundane journey at this point. So the film actually kicks off with Killian uh, Murphy's character, And, well, it really kicks off with this beautiful, long uh, sort of tracking or, or uh, dolly shot zooming in on the sun from the Fox Searchlight logo, yeah. like the, or the with the setting sun in the background. It zooms in one shot into that, then it rotates, and we realize that we're seeing the reflection of the sun in this massive solar uh, collector on the front of the ship. Right, which is an awesome design, right? The Icarus is, is basically designed to use solar energy to propel itself forward. So it has this huge reflecting thing on the front to both collect energy and deflect the sunlight, because as you get closer, it is going it becomes more destructive, right? It's going to kill you uh, at a certain point, and no ship can withstand it. So all of these reflectors protect the the ship, which basically exists in darkness behind this giant reflector. And so we get this amazing shot, and then it, you know, goes to tidal and it's Awesome, and it's just what you would expect out of Danny Boyle at a certain point. Um, but so the crew is is great. So let's I guess let's talk about the crew first. Uh, Killian Murphy is the scientist man uh, who knows science and has designed this bomb that is supposed to restart the fusion reaction inside the sun. And then uh, everybody else is sort of purpose built to a function, like a a real team of astronauts would be right. You would have one guy that handles this, one person that handles this, one person that handles this, so on and so forth. So, what are some of the standouts from you know the cast?
1: Um, well, there's a, there's certainly a lot more people when the film begins, um, mm-hmm. but it's centered around uh, Kappa, the the science man, Silly Murphy's science man. Um, I he's our our narrative kind of focal point, but directly around him would be the character Cassie. She's a flight officer, played by Rose Byrne, who is just wonderful. I love her. Early,
0: early in Rose Byrne's yes. career.
1: Yeah. Um, she's very kind and very sensitive and um, seems to be a little bit more in touch with her humanity, whereas most of them have sort of disconnected from the importance and the gravity of the mission and sort of the the giant human concern. Like, they're trying not to overly focus on that. But she is very much focused on the human concerns at all times. Um, on the flip side, you have Chris Evans playing the character of Mace. Um,
0: and let me just say that this was the movie that made me believe that Chris Evans could actually act. Because um, I love this, yeah. Yeah, my only experience prior to this was—I would assume most people's experience with Chris Evans, which was the two Fantastic Four movies, which Ooh. are awful. He's not bad in them, but the movies themselves are terrible, and uh, not another teen movie, <laughs> right, the, the, the teen comedy <laughs> that he was in very early in his career, and so. Here, he is. he's legitimately playing a a pretty interesting character. He's kind of the ship's engineer, in essence. And um, he conflicts with Cap a lot because, well, several members of the crew, because he's very mission-focused. This is what we're here to do. This is our only goal. Nothing else matters. Keep the ship moving, right? And so um, when they announced that he was going to be Captain America, this was the film I pointed to and said, this will be fine yeah right this is this is good and it was fun. um and it was fine it was actually <laughs> a really great choice on marvel's part uh so we've got a host of other characters michelle yeo um michelle yeo who uh you know crouching tiger hidden dragon huge history with jackie chan in the hong kong film market um obviously she's some success she was in one, uh, one of the pierce brosnan bond films um she is here as the the horticulturist, the the biologist botanist. or a botanist uh, who keeps all of the plants that provide them with oxygen alive and sort of, you know, their food source, etc. And she's fantastic. Uh, her name is Corazon, right? So she's the heart of the ship, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, Cliff Curtis in another early role, um, at least in my experience he'd been around for a while, but this is one of the first ones that I remember him uh, you know, very very fondly. He plays the ship's psychiatrist.
1: Dr. Searle, I Who, I love that it's a psychiatrist, because just in case, you know, people don't know this, every single psychiatric doctor must go through medical doctor training. So they are both a that medical doctor and mm-hmm. a psychiatric doctor. So that would be the perfect person to put on a spaceship to serve double duty as your physician and your psychiatrist.
0: And your, your emotional support amongst the group.
1: Like, that's, exactly. that is, that was one of those aha moments where I'm like, that's so
0: practical.
1: What a nice little detail.
0: <laughs> right, you get a twofer there. Yeah, I guess a lot of people may not know that distinction. Uh, that, uh, psychiatry is a medical field, right? It is a, a specialization yeah. within medicine. Whereas a psychologist is a person who has an advanced degree in psychology, yeah. but no medical training uh, is, is necessarily required there. Uh, psychiatrists are also the only ones who can dispense and, and, uh, prescribe medication. Yep. Right. So, um, Searle is, is absolutely, uh, a perfect choice, right? Again, it's from a screenwriting standpoint where you're trying to really build a real crew. He makes a lot of sense. Um, we have the, the sort of flight team, as you mentioned with Cassie, um, this is, is definitely the earliest time that I remember seeing uh, Benedict Wong, now uh-huh. B.D. Wong, who most people know as Wong <laughs> from <laughs> the Marvel Universe, where he plays in Doctor Strange and uh, both of the Avengers films. Um, but this is a very early uh, uh, time I remember seeing him, and he is fantastic here uh, in a, a, what amounts to a very small role, but a really crucial one in terms of the story. Uh, also, again, one of my first times ever seeing uh, Hiroyuki Sonata, who is now everywhere, also in the Marvel Universe as a couple different characters, but um, just, it's hard to say how great this cast is, right? They're really good. And the time that we spend with them on the ship, which is the bulk of the film, is is interrelationships with these characters. They feel really good together. Right, And and I did some reading and, and supposedly Boyle put them all together beforehand, had them study their specialties for real so that they knew what they were talking about, at least more than maybe an actor would typically be required to. And then actually had them work together for several weeks prior to shooting so that they had relationships built and they had had to sort of deal with each other. And, and you know, it, it, you can feel that, right? It's, it's a very similar thing. I know we talk about Jim Cameron a lot. It's a very similar thing to what he had the Marines do before starting Aliens, right? Like, he had those people come together and basically do boot camp together so that they had formed relationships and had banter and knew each other before the film started, right? And and you can feel that at work here. Like, these people work really well together. Um, so I guess to, to get back to the story, now that we know kind of the, the players involved – they are reaching the point as the film begins where they're no longer going to be able to send and receive messages from home, right? They've, they've passed a point where they can't do that anymore. And so Kappa is sending a message home after their sort of breakfast together, which is very reminiscent of alien. I think that's really where people made that connection is because they've got the conversation around the, the breakfast table where they're all complaining and sharing their thoughts and working through their problems, et cetera and uh, kappa sends a message and it takes too long and chris evans character misses his window right he does not get to send a message to his family before they're out of range and and they get into a fight a bad one and uh we see like a really cool therapeutic session where searle is they basically go inside this holographic chamber and and get to relive like a fun moment and he he's at the shore and watching the waves crash over to the side of something and and, uh, you know, so he's, you know, it's, you can tell that's a method that they use to try and calm people down and, and to have a place to go outside of the ship, implying that, hey, yeah, this is really difficult living together in this tiny space with, you know, all these people. So they kind of reconcile and, you know, we begin jumping forward. But the crux of the film really begins when the crew, as they approach the sun, discover that... The Icarus One is there, right? That it is in orbit around the sun and that it is close enough that they can actually go and get the payload off of that ship. Yeah,
1: The bomb is still attached. They never completed the mission. They never tried or attempted. <clears throat> so the ship is still just there hanging out like right on the boundary of where they would launch the bomb and go home so it's extremely mysterious um you know it's it's one of those fantastic setups that it's intriguing it's it's got that i don't know kind of event horizony appeal mm-hmm. yeah. to it uh, i there's mean there's some
0: real similarities there yeah
1: um i love how they discover the the ship, you know, they have this lovely moment because they get to see Mercury make its transit around the sun and everybody gathers. There's an observation deck on the ship, of course, so they can see out and they all gather on this observation deck. And there's a wonderful scene where the camera sort of floats to each person and you can see their reactions to witnessing there, this incredible thing that no human aside from them will get to see, um, you know, where their heads are at, you know, um, what they're focused on. It's just it's a really nice moment. But after that, they have um because they're so close to Mercury, they're able to pick up this distress signal that's from the original the original ship, the Icarus one. And it has it's wonderful audio. Like the film just has such fantastic mm, sound design. Really
0: good sound design. Um,
1: but it has that wonderful creepy little um distress beacon that that sounds out. I can still hear it. Like <laughs> It's mm-hmm. such a such a wonderful little textural detail to it.
0: Yeah, the observation deck actually has been a sort of key fixture of the film up until that point as well. Searle uh, is actually the first character that we see and he is sitting in the observation deck and he it has a, a polarizing filter on the screen that can be adjusted because sunlight at that distance is is incredibly powerful. it's unshielded, right There's nothing. Protecting you from the effects of the sun's rays, and we're shown that he has started lowering that filter to take in the sunlight, at, in these incredibly high doses, right? And so he's always walking around with sunglasses on his head, and you can tell his skin—it's very it's dark, right? He's peeling like they—they they show his lips later, and they're—they're they're sort of dry and cracked, you know. So he's—he's he's dosing himself, and um, it other characters are kind of trying it too. Uh, the captain is shown doing that later, not to the same degree, but, you know, just sort of soaking in the sun. And so it, you can see Garland and Boyle kind of working to, to, to add this sort of mythical component, right? That the sun is, is this, I mean, it, the metaphor is very simple, right? It's the thing that gives us life, right? So the closer you are to it, the closer to life you are and it fills you in these interesting ways. And it, it sets up some things that do happen in the third act that people have problems with. But in essence, you know, there is um this idea that the sun is is sort of intoxicating in this weird way and that it its power is it lulls people in. And and that it, it's just kind of a backgrounded it's, element, but it's certainly there.
1: It's know. kind of the the dichotomy of nature being you know, destructive and restorative at the same time, that it represents both extremes. Um, the sun is restorative, it heals, it it empowers, it gives so much to us, and yet it can burn everyone alive, right. it can consume the ship, it can destroy everything if it wants to. Um, so it sort of it illustrates the kind of tenuous relationship that we have with nature, that we can't control it. Um, No matter how much we might like the idea of controlling it.
0: Right. And if anything, this crew seems extremely competent, extremely together. And then um, that kind of leads us to the crucial mistake of the film. They do decide to go after the Icarus One, so they have to make a course adjustment. And in making this course adjustment, uh, uh, B.D. Wong's character forgets to realign the dish. So the ship begins turning yeah he begins the ship begins to turn towards you know the icarus one which slightly alters their their angle to the sun and he doesn't realign this massive solar reflector on the front of the ship properly and so the sun and its incredible immense destructive power begins to wreak havoc on the ship and uh, they are forced to go outside and do a spacewalk to correct some of the problems and try and manually put things back so that they can continue the journey if not, the whole thing will fail and humanity will die. So it's a, a crucial component. Uh Hiroyuki Sonata, you know, is the captain, you know, Kaneda. It's Kaneda, isn't it?
2: hmm
0: Yeah, which obviously a, Exactly. It's an Akira reference. Kaneda uh, <laughs> Um But so like uh they have to go out and they have to do the spacewalk. And it's all and you know, the I would say the spacewalk for me is probably the most hard sci-fi feeling sequence in this film very much you can tell they they really thought through okay you're in space you are in close proximity to the sun how are you going to deal with that right so they don't have the big visors they have these little strips that they can look through that get immediately covered up with these massive polarizing filters the suits themselves are made of um like a gold reflective material to bounce the sun off so that and they, they don't absorb they any heat. They really
1: convey the heaviness of the suits.
0: Yeah, yeah. They're just big and bulky. Uh, a little reminiscent of the suits in Alien, although far clunkier than that, even. Um, You know, if you look closely at the suits in Alien, there's like lace doily stuff sewn into it to give it texture. Vinyl will
1: keep us safe in space. There's there's
0: no lace doilies sewn into these spacesuits, right? It's all just big, heavy, clunky metal. They're hard suits, right? The things that, you know, they they spin on joints, things like that. So they have to go out and try and repair uh, the parts of the ship that have been damaged. And that really is is the shift from Act 1 into Act 2 of the film. Um the repair is completed, but the captain is forced to sacrifice himself uh, to the sun. So he is the first person to quite literally burn up in the sun as a result of these, um, you know, the situation.
1: And it's sort of presented to us that he, he almost chose to burn up rather yeah, than no, he, save himself?
0: He could have saved himself, but um. he... But he's kind of
1: consumed with what happened to the previous mission. He's very, very much concerned that the same thing is going to happen to them. And I think he kind of sacrifices himself before it has a chance to.
0: Yeah, you kind of get the impression that the Icarus 2 crew, apart from Kappa, who is, you know, one of the main sort of scientists behind this whole project, that this was the B team, right? Like the A team was already sent and they failed. So what does that say about us?
2: Yeah.
0: Right. And, and that is kind of a, a latent thing. It's not really discussed, but it's obvious that the captain did have a previous relationship with the characters uh, or the, the individuals on the Icarus one. He knew them. Isn't there like a calendar or something? I forget what it is, but they, he has a picture of them mm-hmm. um, and, and that we consult. So they kind of seed in that the, you know, the crew of the Icarus one pretty early. So they make the repair. The captain dies. Um, it crushes the crew emotionally, specifically uh, B.D. Wong's character because he is the one responsible for it. So they put him into isolation, fearing that he's a suicide risk. Here um,
1: she is? Completely. It's founded.
0: <laughs> yeah, completely. absolutely founded. He's he was breaking before all this happened, and and now it seems pretty assured that he is is.
1: I danger. love that he loses his shit in the manner that he does. That was mm-hmm. such a wonderfully human reaction. That
0: uh, a it's lot an incredibly of movies, memorable scene.
1: yeah, a lot of movies won't let an actor like encompass a failure like that. Like he just he acts that so well. Um, just feeling the full weight of that failure on his shoulders. It's so sad.
0: Yeah, it's um, you know we're kind of not really a PG podcast, but I mean, he basically screams I fucked up Yeah, at the top of his lungs. Like he goes, you know, I can imagine a casting director being like, okay, that's 10. Mm -hmm. Let's see what you've got at three. (laughs) Like, like I, you know, it it feels like, but Boyle was like, no, you are on the edge. This is over. Right. What are, what are you going to do? And, and Wong goes for it. Like he is, all in. And it's, it's such a memorable scene. One of the most memorable scenes for me in the film, like I can remember the texture of his voice, the, the, the way he delivers it, the, hey, it's shot in a, in a profile view, a side perspective. So you can kind of see the rest of the crew standing around him. But I, I just remember the specifics of his performance so powerfully because it is such a rarity to see an actor, you know, deliver with that kind of power and conviction. Uh, yeah. and, and he really does. So they fix they fix it, um, but the ship has been irreparably damaged, and as the dish is realigning, there is a refraction uh or yeah, i guess a refraction of the light that hits the botanical section, right, so they lose their oxygen source, and um you know now, whereas before they were in trouble now. This, this could very well be the end of it. So, I mean, the tension is, is super good, and you feel the stakes of it um, pretty much all the way through, and everything just gets, you know, everything keeps getting heaped on and on and on, right? Which I think really good hard sci-fi movies do, right? You always feel like you're balanced on the edge of a knife, and that's exactly what Boyle creates here. Um, so we're then introduced to the bomb. We kind of see the scope and scale of it, right This is not some you know nuclear warhead. It is literally like several football fields of nuclear yeah. material uh that they are carrying quite literally it is the bulk of the ship, and that it is of Kappa's design. He's really the only one that fully understands how it works and what it does. But we did get that cool. We do get a cool scene where he is trying to run the simulation of what's going to happen when the bomb enters the sun, and basically it's too complicated, and the math cannot provide him with answers. You
1: can't simulate the answer,
0: right? So again, it's it's something that in hard sci-fi they would have simulated an answer, even if it was yeah. a flawed one. But Garland is and Boyle here are are content with leaving this era of mystery, right? The metaphor and the mystery
1: of what we, of what we can't know is kind of the point.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah. And it's, it's central to what these characters are going through, right? They're making this huge change, but they don't know if it's going to work. The fact that they don't know it's going to work doesn't change that they need to do it. Right. Um, And it's, it's a really kind of cool thing. So they make the course correction. They arrive at the Icarus one, when they arrive, they find that the crew is dead, but not from some kind of explosion or failure that they, they killed themselves, right? Or, or were killed by someone or something. And while they're there, the um, umbilical between their two ships, the, the airlock, if you will, uh, is blown up. Right, it depressurizes, and so they're separated from the Icarus II and a small contingent. I guess it's Kappa, Mace, Chris Evans' character, uh, Cliff Curtis' character, and then Harvey, one of the flight officers, who is, um, he's the wormy guy, I guess. Like, he's like the dude who just he wants to get the job done, he wants to go home. Uh, you know, he has some commitment, but it, it, he really doesn't ever seem to convey the conviction. Of the other characters. Uh, He's mostly like the naysayer guy that's like that's a really terrible idea to pretty much everything. Uh, So they all get trapped over on the Icarus 2 and uh, have to devise a way to get back over. So we get another little hard sci-fi thing as they they decide that they're going to wrap themselves uh, in insulating material from the ship, open the airlock, and attempt to make the jump between the two ships. Uh, from airlock to airlock, because again, the thing that most people maybe don't fully understand is that you you don't die instantly from exposure no. to space.
1: You die quickly, but not instantly.
0: Right. It's it's you know you don't want to go for a swim, right? Yeah. Don't want to lollygag your way around, but you could survive as long as you were sort of immediately taken into another pressurized environment.
1: And this whole scene harkens back to Event Horizon. Me with, you know, mm-hmm. Justin going out of the airlock and how right. that changed everyone's life. Who saw that film? Because <laughs> um, <clears throat> it's it's got some similarly horrific tones to it, but I feel like it was, it's still not good science as far as what happens in a depressurization situation. No, um, but it was it was an interesting take. I, I appreciated it.
0: So the airlock depressurizes. They decide they're going to wrap themselves in insulating material. There's one spacesuit, so Kappa is is in that. They decide that he's the most essential because he's the scientist who knows how to make right. the bomb. So uh, they they spacesuit him up, and then uh, Mace and Harvey are going to to make the jump. Right? Yes. Uh And then Cliff Curtis, he uh, or Dr. Seal, he decides to stay behind on the Icarus too. Correct.
1: Yeah, he stays behind. He, he, he stays sacrifices behind. himself.
0: Sacrifices himself.
1: And he has a wonderful death scene. It's absolutely sad and fabulous. Because you get kind of attached to the character of Searle. Like, he's a little bit strange, and everybody kind of regards him as being kind of strange, eccentric. Um, and then, you know, he preaches this message throughout the, the first half of the film. Of you know this incredible power of the sun and how it's you know it's so wonderful and it can you know, make you feel more whole and complete and and then his death scene is sitting on the observation deck of the Icarus One and the shield is pulled away from the window and he perishes. It's a very very difficult death, but really really well done.
0: Yeah, very poignant. Um, you know, he sort of finishes his character arc by fully giving himself over to this thing that he's become you know, sort yeah. of fascinated by. Uh, so they make the jump. Uh, Harvey, the flight officer, who is a bit of a wormy guy, right? Like, you know, nobody really likes him. Uh, he, he very much is mission focused.
1: He's the one who's handling being away from Earth the worst.
0: Mm-hmm. And he and is, is desperate the one he, to get back.
1: Yeah, he's the one who hold out, holds out the longest hope that they're going to make it back.
0: Yeah, I would say that's true. He definitely has the, it's not optimism, it's just the belief that they should be able to go home, that this is like a job. And they told me I could come home, and that's what I want. Unfortunately, he is lost in the traversal <laughs> and, uh, and dies, uh, but Kappa and Mace do make it back to the Icarus too and make it inside, although they are outside for longer than they should have been, and Mace uh, gets like some significant frostbite on his extremities. Uh, or whatever the space equivalent of Frossoi would be. <laughs> I'm not, not terrifically space sure. Bite. Space bites. Uh, he gets jacked up real bad uh, because of it, but Harvey uh, dies.
1: Yeah. Hilariously. Uh, I mean, not that death is funny. I don't want to minimize no. the pain of anyone, but it is really funny when he dies.
0: <laughs> and so now we shift into the, the final act of the film, which is the act that most people have the biggest problems with. Because this movie makes a shift. Uh, when they were connected to the Icarus One, the reason why there was a depressurization between the two ships was because someone was still alive on the Icarus One. And uh, we're briefly introduced to that individual. Um, it is the the captain of the Icarus One. We find out that his crew did not sacrifice themselves. They were murdered, for all intents and purposes, by Penbacker. And
1: played by Mark Strong, who I, by I Mark love Strong. so much.
0: He's great in everything. He's a really good villain guy. Uh, we just watched uh, John Carter a couple nights ago, and he's main villain guy in that one, and he's really good.
1: Such a creepy, creepy performance that he gives in so many things. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I just, I don't know. I really liked him in uh, the Sherlock Holmes movie. The uh, yep, guy, Ritchie, the first one, Sherlock yeah. Holmes. Um we just
0: watched uh, Sherlock Holmes a Game of Shadows a couple nights ago. Such a great creepy
1: yeah. role for Mark Strong. <coughs> mm-hmm. Um so I was really happy to see him as an actor just doing anything. Um but yes, Pinbacker Pinbacker is alive. And we right. get that sort of of when they're on board the Icarus when we get that very disjointed confusing message from him like his his interstellar blog where he's saying all sorts of crazy things um, about, you know, like being chosen to hang out at the end of the universe. It's very, it's all very, it is a lot of nonsense. I mean, I will go out and say like most of what he says is nonsense, but there's a few genuinely creepy moments from him.
0: Yeah. You can tell that they're really working this idea that this kind of proximity to something as important and glorious as the sun would become a kind of religious awe if you want to call it that right like you are you are quite literally close closer to God yeah. through this and it's sort of what we've seen happening to Searle over the course of the film and and is heavily implied that that is what has happened to pinbacker but he has taken it to another level and he's taken so,
1: it to a very negative extreme it seems right, like and like Cyril he needs was... to
0: protect yeah you know, he needs to protect what the sun is doing. Like this is what's supposed to happen. We shouldn't interfere, kind of thing.
1: Um so what you is, say about Cyril? Uh, well, I was just gonna say he's Searle is almost encouraging us to get more of the sun and be closer to the sun and you know, enrobe ourselves in sunlight. And Pinbacker's sort of the opposite. He's like, you know, we stand with the sun here at the end of space, and we're not going to interfere because it's not our place. Um, So they're they're sort of like like their own horseshoe effect, where they're both extremists, but they're on differing sides of an extreme. But they're very similar.
0: Right, yeah, two halves of the same coin. You can kind of see... um, Garland building that, you know, he's sort of helping us understand Pinbacker by Searle's existence, but this might be what happens if you also compound that with seven years of isolation and insanity. Um, But uh, so Pinbacker has gotten on to the Icarus 2 and has now decided that he's going to enact the the same protocol that he did on the Icarus 1, and he's going to stop them from completing their mission. Uh, So the first... Scene of him he is in the observation deck again and he has opened himself nearly fully to the sun's power and he is he's irradiated he's he's <laughs> irradiated his skin has been burned off he has no hair his flesh is basically you know falling off in in flakes he right?
1: looks like and a broiler fryer from a Ron pope commercial. Yeah it's and
0: bad. and here's where where the science of the film becomes secondary, right? So, how did this guy survive? If he has been dosing himself with massive amounts of UV radiation for the past seven years, how is he not dead? Lots and lots of very legitimate sciency questions that you can throw at this, and the film does not really have good answers for. Um, again, they're they're trying desperately to to build to take a film that already had a lot of tension just at its core and then add another kind of tension on the top of it.
1: And I guess that's, that's the one thing that I I felt like the movie didn't need to do was to add another layer. Like I like that pinbackers there. I just, I don't necessarily need it to become action oriented. Like it feels, it feels like for a few minutes, just yes. for a few minutes and a couple of scenes that it wants to be an action-oriented horror close-up mm-hmm. and it just doesn't really doesn't really work
0: right it's a tonal shift and it's something that a lot of the reviews hinted at they didn't you know obviously they didn't want to spoil anything even in 2007 uh 2008 but it, it really is we shift i mean basically he's like michael myers for the last 20 minutes of this movie he's hunting them he has a surgical knife um and he is the one that dispenses with the rest of the crew right because at this point most of the crew is still alive um you know we've still got mace we've still got kappa we've still got Roseburn, uh we've still got michelle yo and and now pinbacker is going to start Stalking them all. So Michelle Yeoh is out in the botany section trying to regrow some plants so that maybe there is this yeah, she glimmer finds of a hope.
1: Little, little sapling. She's yeah, so excited. A
0: beautiful moment. And then Pinbacker just murders her, uh, which sucks. Uh, Mace doesn't die that way. Uh, Pinbacker tries to sabotage the computer systems. Um, again, he's a captain, he knows how to do it. so, And uh, Mace sacrifices himself by going down. Into the coolant in the, the giant sort of computer. Yeah, he's in way. these huge
1: like antifreeze tanks and shivering to death, poor little Chris Adams.
0: Yeah, and and it's a great scene. Like it is absolutely gorgeous. Uh, it's shot really well. It's acted really well. Like it's a it's a very heroic death because he's trying to keep the mission going. And that's really where the the final. That's where the final bits of tension come from. Not only can they complete the mission, but you know can they. Is there any hope that any of these people are gonna make it and and there's a really good like ten to fifteen minutes where you still feel like this all might work out and then that gets kind of robbed from you at the end intentionally you know yeah. uh, but it is something you know in my experience wide audiences uh, well let's let's go ahead and get to the end so penbacker goes on his little massacre um they are are fighting him off as best they can and ultimately it comes down to Kappa. Going down to the bomb room and sort of manually riding the bomb into the sun. Yep. Right, like that is that is how this film ends. Uh, there is another short. He
1: Doctor strange, uh, loves <laughs> strange loves into the
0: sun. He uh, strange loves into the sun. There is another. Uh, he depressurizes the ship in order to hopefully kill Penbacker.
1: That scene right? is cool. I don't care. And what that's says. it's that really good.
0: Really cool. He depressurizes the ship. Everybody else is dead. There's no reason not to. Uh, but he depressurizes the ship and um, then makes his way in one of the awesome gold spacesuits to the bomb to manually trigger the final sequence because they have arrived at the sun. They're, they're there, right? Um, but I've never had a movie that <laughs> that turned falling down into <laughs> the sort of last big... Emotional yeah. climactic moment, right? But in this giant spacesuit that is impossible to move around in in regular gravity, which is what they have on the Icarus, uh, Killian Murphy falls over and is stuck and has to sort of work himself back up wearing this, you know, obviously massive spacesuit. And it's a great scene. Like that's it's a, really simple, but that's
1: a wonderful scene to teach. I taught this film um, in my world mythology class. And I loved teaching that scene because, first of all, all of the kids are still reeling from Mace's death when they're like, Captain America died. Right, um, they have that
0: context now. <laughs> they're all America's very dead. upset. Yeah. Captain
1: America's gone. Um, and there's inevitably there's that one kid who pipes up with, why is he so mad when he falls down
0: in the suit? Right. <laughs> and then
1: someone pipes up with, those things weigh like 500 pounds. <laughs> right. <laughs> why is he so mad?
0: Why? What's, these, what's the problem?
1: His sounds upset. I don't get it.
0: <clears throat> so then, I guess it's it's kind of revealed that the entire front reflector of the Icarus One, the the massive one, is what has the bomb on it, right? And so the ship they is had, actually tiny. Uh, yeah, the actual Icarus One is this tiny thing, and it has a little tiny reflector on it that was designed to serve their purposes as they, you know, basically reversed course directly and headed back to Earth. And so Kappa has to manually release the bomb from the ship uh, in order to begin the launch sequence that would trigger it. And then he gets uh, stuck on the Icarus One. Uh, now is it he has to manually trigger the bomb himself? Is that the way it works? I don't remember exactly why he goes to the bomb. Maybe it's just because there's no way he else has to, go. to.
1: He has to activate it. <clears throat> right. Maybe he can't so, do it from the ship anymore.
0: Right, that's the thing. And so he makes the the space jump, right? So we get another gorgeous, beautiful, you know, basically the transit of mercury, but it's a dude.
2: Yeah.
0: Um as he, you know, makes his way to the bomb so that he can activate it. And of course, Pinbacker <laughs> is on the bomb. So we get another kind of final confrontation with Pinbacker who is is very close to death. Roseburn is also there, very close to death. Um you know, Kappa is is now the lone individual responsible for, you know, potentially saving humanity. Uh, and let me just say that the bomb set is very cool. It's a, it's a big cube, but it's shot really well. Um, Boyle uses a lot of, uh, not Dutch angles, but he uses the... The, you know the the square cube shape to offset a lot of really interesting camera moves and there's some cool lighting it's it's all kind of disorienting right like you mm-hmm. get the feeling of, of somebody falling through space and then something we saw a little window of earlier begins to happen as all of these reactions begin to take place right so because basically he's standing in the middle of a giant nuclear bomb as it's getting ready to go off and you know we've had this question from the beginning of what's going to happen when the bomb begins what's going to take place and again bad science aside what we get is a final shot of killian murphy ostensibly inside of these exploding hydrogen atoms and he witnesses you know again this religious awe the, the sort of full power of the sun is right in front of him and the explosion and the power of the sun sort of meet in this stasis point and he is held right in the middle of it and is capable of sort of quite literally reaching out and touching the sun in this moment of intensely powerful euphoria, right? And and then he, he dies.
1: And it suggests that Searle was right and that the sun is a restorative power ultimately, and that even though it is destructive, you know, I don't know, respect the sun?
0: Respect yeah, there's... The sun. I mean, we. this is 2007, right? So we have another component of this, you know, from a societal standpoint that, you know, while we the movement towards, you know, green technology and understanding of climate change, of, you know, the ability of a human being to alter... The nature of the functioning of the, of the, the planet—you know—all of those ideas are kind of on rushing in the mid two thousands as well in, in terms of public response, and I think this film is very much attached to that. It's not directly addressing that. It's—it's it's not a film about the ecology or the climate of Earth, right? It's—it's it's definitely about the sun, but this idea of our connection to the world around us is is very part of much a part of this film and I think that it is in its own way a kind of backhanded poke at you know hey maybe we should respect some of the things that are going on around us maybe we should pay attention um, in its own way again it's it's very subtle about it. it's not trying to
1: it's not a message film.
0: No, not at all. I mean there are messages here. I, I don't know if Alex Garland can write a movie devoid of messages. I just think he cares very little about what those messages are at the end of the day
1: i think you i think this this is more of a question asking film and rather than a question answering film huh. let's just ask some questions Yeah, i'm just we'll asking talk questions. about potential answers yeah. you know but no one is right no one is wrong we're just we're just talking <laughs> i feel like wrong. alex garland films are like we're just talking <laughs> we're
0: just talking about these <laughs> things you know i'm not trying to make you make you think anything um but the, the coda of the film, the final shot, is back on Earth in Australia, I guess, because we can mm-hmm. kind of see the Sydney Opera House in the background. And, and we get the, the voiceover, the piece of Kappa's message that made it run too long, that we did not get to see before, uh, now just being received back on Earth uh, by his family, where he basically says that if there's a, a day that ever comes where the sun seems a little brighter, where, you know, things seem a little bit less dour that maybe we've been successful and maybe that's that's enough, right? Uh, because at this point, most of the crew knows that there's probably a small chance that they're actually going to come back. Um, and and that's exactly what happens. Uh, presumably Kappa's family, I guess it's his sister. It's they? his sister, yeah. Yeah. They, uh, they stare up at the sun, the sun brightens in the sky, kind of like floods the frame with a bit of enhanced light. And, you know, we're left with the hopefully uplifting idea that Kappa, even though he has died with the rest of the crew of the Icarus II, that their mission was indeed successful and the people on Earth, it will shift from this horrifying 100% winter into you know, what we recognize. Give us another chance. If you yeah. And and so it's a hopeful ending, but in my experience, hopeful endings when done this way, where we don't have a, you know, we don't have Matt Damon riding the, <laughs> riding the spaceship back to earth and then getting the heroes welcome, um, those don't do as well because it's an ending that, uh, you know, I guess at this point, most people lump them in as Shakespearean, right? Because they're tragic, uh, I think that is a, a gross oversimplification of Shakespearean tragedy, obviously. Yeah. But anytime okay. there's an ending that is satisfying but not happy, that's what it gets labeled as.
1: And that's sad. Those are my favorite kinds of endings.
0: Right. I, I remember The Mist coming out and people just hated the ending of that movie. And it is, it's a hard ending to watch, but it's... It, it, a lot of people labeled that as Shakespearean. A lot of critics at the time, oh, the Shakespearean. And it's like, well, not exactly, man. But yeah. I get where you're going with it. It's a dramatic ending, right? Shakespeare it's,
1: shot any kids. I don't know. <laughs>
0: yeah, I'm not sure that was ever a big part of his uh, his <laughs> oeuvre. Shakespeare's
1: um, child death plays, like the <laughs> lesser known.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, the kid death plays. Yes, of <laughs> course. He wrote most of those in Sixteen two. 16 two. Um. But, yeah, it's, it's just a very uh, – it's an ending that is, is, as I said, satisfying. It's thematically appropriate. It is uh, interesting. It's beautiful. But at the same time, we do not get that rush of, yes, we did it, right? Not in the way that a lot of people, I think, would hope for or want. Um, and, and that's pretty much it, right? It's, at the end of the day, it's a simple story. Like, it is not terrifically complicated in terms of what's happening. Um, you know, a simple plot, but high execution, a lot of time spent, you know, in discussion of, you know, we talked about character work, right? Like there is a lot of character work. There are a lot of characters just in general, but you know, all of them get their moment. All of them have a key role to play. Nobody feels extraneous, but we're also not getting, you know, super deep, dramatic conversations between these characters about their lives and who they are and what their motivations be. A lot of that is left up to us to decide, right? So it feels very much like like a lot of Boyle's other work where you have what is ostensibly a genre film mm-hmm. that has genre film components that it needs to meet, but also these aspirational components, tacked to that um, these pieces that are attempting to elevate beyond just what the genre would dictate and and Boyle does that pretty frequently in my experience that's kind of what he likes and it's definitely what Garland likes like that is what Alex Garland does in terms of his writing uh, genre with literary aspirations I know we've talked about you know some of the films that we've we've reviewed already we've talked about how it's it you know, a lot of the flaws in the film are because they feel like they have to meet these genre expectations, but yet they have these other goals in mind for the characters and for the storyline. And this feels like one of those two. Uh, One of the weirder choices is they basically replay the whole movie over the credits. Yeah. Um, Which I remember being in the theater being like, why are are we being shown the movie again? I don't understand. And I, I think at some level it's them... Allowing you to revisit things to try and answer some questions, which tells me that there are a lot of the people at the studio didn't really get it, um, and so they're they're like trying to allow you if you had questions about things that had happened. To review and revisit the film so that you can answer your own questions before you leave. It's just—it's a really and
1: now for a short review. <laughs> now
0: for a short review, right? It feels like an abstract of the movie that you get to watch over the last six minutes of the credits. And I—I I really don't know why it exists, other than it's a studio note, right? Like, um, you know, I, I there are no stories that I was able to find of like you know historic battles between Boyle and the studio. Um, I do know that Alex Garland, his work j- regularly, he gets into these fights with um, studios. And it's only now that he's working primarily in super low budget stuff that he's able to kind of avoid a lot of that. But I, I, I just, I don't know. There's some, definitely some weird things here. So, So, I mean, that's the film in a nutshell. Ship goes to the sun to restart it. Don't worry about the science of it. They find the other ship that was supposed to do that. There's a crazy dude on board. A bunch of people die. They blow up the bomb successfully. Restart the sun. That's the story. At the end of the day, there's really nothing more complicated than that.
1: And I think the the interesting thing about the film is the story is simple. And I I wish more people could set that aside in favor of the visual trappings of the film because it's mm-hmm. it's beautiful. Um it is yeah. a a home theater neces words it's home theater <laughs> words um it's a necessity uh, right this is a my, showcase yeah piece. it's one of my home yeah. theater test movies like when we set up a new component of the home theater i'm I'm like let's get sunshine out um when we installed our you know surround sound that was the movie i thought of first um because the sound design is incredible the soundtrack mm-hmm. kicks ass Um, it's, it's a film that in its presentation, yes, it's very simple, but it's, it's worth absorbing a simple story that's kind of soaked in all of this style.
0: Right. It gives them room to explore style, to explore some ideas, um, and to, to play with a situation that will never happen right at least not by any meaning not by anything we can understand now but to, you know really spend some time with and see what it might mean for people to contemplate the end of the world because we've been betrayed by the thing that supposedly gives us life yeah right um again there's there's lots of metaphor here that we can discuss and we'll, we'll get into that here in just a minute but um ultimately the film is a, a really solid one of these films right? It's yeah. it's a very solid hard sci-fi movie. Um, the third act turn where it becomes a bit of a horror movie comes a bit out of left field.
1: But then I'm, those scenes only last you know, we're talking 10 minutes tops.
0: Yeah, it's 10 to 15 minutes action. of the third <laughs> act. Um, and again, we could have a discussion an argument about whether or not it's needed. It's probably not. Um, you know, Penbacker adds, as we said, another layer of tension to the film that it probably didn't need. They could have just built another obstacle into, you know, just the obstacle of needing to get the bomb into the sun manually, right? So you'd still get the space jump. You'd still get all of that stuff. Um, you know, it could have a mechanical malfunction. Something else goes wrong. Really what it, it feels like to a certain extent is that once they had found the Icarus II, they didn't really know what else could go wrong on the ship to cause tension, to push them to the end of the film when I think that they probably could have found another way. Yeah. Um, but again, they're dealing with this idea of religious experience of the sun and life and it's occupy, you know, it's, it's place in human society as being, I mean, most early representations of God were the sun, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Ra in Egyptian mythology. I mean, there's the, I, we don't have to go into it, but there are dozens and dozens that basically the sun is God. And I think Garland is and Boyle, to a certain extent, too, are interested in playing with that idea, right? What does it feel like to be in the presence of your God for all intents and purposes? Yeah. and And they, you know, for for better or worse, decided to show Searle's version of it, right? Where it does become this deeply religious, sacrificial thing that has made him better in some way, perhaps. for pinbacker, it's the cultish um ownership of it, right? This is my thing and I'm gonna save it and protect it. And then Kappa is this this wedge point in between where he's he's a man who Yeah, he's he's the, your the regular person, but he's also the person that has this very legitimate interaction with it. Like I understand what you are, but I need to change you, right? I need to to give something else to you. And and so there's this, it's an interesting kind of like three viewpoints on the same thing um, is sort of narrative structure, right? Something you'll see is like, oh, it could be a little this and a little this and a little this. And, you know, whether the film needed it, I don't know. I mean, in, in terms of what you're expecting out of hard sci-fi, probably not. But it is a unique component of the movie. And I think without it, if you take that out, it does become a very basic and relatively straightforward sci-fi story. Yeah, And not to say it wouldn't have worked as that, it, I'm sure it would have, but this, you know, honestly with, with, uh, Danny Boyle and with Alex Garland, especially, um, you get a little bit of that spice, if I can call it that they, they wing a little bit of that stuff in there because it's interesting to them. And whether that's for ill or for good, it's kind of up to the audience to decide. But it's certainly something that I've grown to expect, right? I'm generally always at least a little bit surprised by the work that these guys do in some form or fashion. I am too. Right? Something about it takes me by surprise and I go, I never would have thought about it that way. Or I wouldn't have expected that. Uh, and sometimes that can be bad, right? Defiance of an audience's expectations is not always a good thing. I completely agree with that. But I appreciate filmmakers that are willing to take that risk, especially to follow an idea down a rabbit hole that they are personally interested in, right? Because films are these personal things. I mean, it is an industry, it is a product, but at the same time, it is, as we've discussed before, it is a piece of art that is being made by people. And those people should have the ability, if they so choose, to infuse that little bit of art with Something they find interesting. Yeah. A piece of it that they are personally fascinated by, right? It's the comic book artist who, you know, draws a logo from a company they like in the background of a comic book panel because eh, I think it's cool, right? Um, And I'm okay with that. So I guess we can break down some of the, you know, the components. Uh, You know, as we've discussed the film, one of the main things drawn against it is that it's shallow, so let's, let's kind of address that first. Uh, and again, shallow is a very broad term, and most of the reviews that I read didn't direct its shallowness at anything particular. I think what we're seeing here is the direct comparison to 2001. Yeah. Um, because 2001 is a deeply thoughtful film. If, if people in the audience have never seen it, it too is about a sort of failed mission to the edge of space to discover a thing that they know is there, but they don't really know what it does. And over the course of that mission, things go wrong. Some sabotage takes place. Some people die. Um, And one lone individual is left to kind of pick up the pieces and try to complete the mission, right? So structurally speaking, it makes sense that Sunshine in 2001 would have some comparisons because they are similar in a lot of ways. But Stanley Cooper's goals with 2001... I think we're very different from the goals of the the Sunshine team. You know, Kubrick, aside from working from source material, right, Sunshine is an original script uh, based on nothing, whereas 2001 is an adaptation of an incredibly long, incredibly complicated, and incredibly rife with idea book, (laughs) rife with ideas book by Arthur C. Clarke. So that's a core difference right there, right, that when you're adapting... A book like clark's book into a film you have more ideas than you can pack in to an even you know two hour and 40 minute film like 2001 whereas with this they don't have that right they're not working from a source material where they've got to work to kind of cram ideas in they are you know building the word the universe from the the, the word go and so it's it's going to be I don't think it's going to have that depth that you're going to get from somebody that's already been through that cycle of story world, uh, a story and world building, you know, to make a book. Um, And then Kubrick, of course, was notorious for his his incredible amounts of research, the time he invested in understanding what he was trying to do. Um, So again, it's, it's nearly an unfair comparison to put another film up against 2001, in my opinion. I, I don't know if you feel similarly, but
1: I, I just wonder how far we have to get away from the works of Stanley Kubrick before we'll let people make similar works without just saying, wow, you're just trying to be 2001. (laughs) Right. You know, this was 2007. We've had quite a bit of time pass between the two films. I think there's plenty of space for both of them to exist on the same stage and not step on each other's toes. Um, And I I that 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 yeah. immediate kubrick comparison just has always kind of confused me a little bit cuz it's it isn't fair. It's just it's a very unfair thing to do to any filmmaker.
0: Yeah, I think it's sort of a false idea that movies that come after other movies should be inherently superior to those movies. Yeah. Um I guess it's the it's the flaw of of progress, right? Like, well, you had more tools at your disposal, why didn't you do a better job? And it's like, well, that's not really how storytelling works. I
1: wasn't really doing the same thing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's not really how art works. Um, I mean, and I, I didn't do the numbers on a budget comparison, but I mean, this was, a rel- this was a $40 million budget in 2007, which is not chump change. No. But that is not a lot of money either. No. Right? I mean, this is well into the era where you've got, you know, the Michael Bay Transformers movies who are spending $300 million, you know, to, to make these blockbusters. So $40 million um, is not a tremendous amount of money to spend. Especially
1: to do what they did visually with the film.
0: Exactly. That's
1: not a lot of money.
0: <laughs> yeah, this is a movie where if they are not in the hallways of the ship, which is very carefully designed, there's no exterior windows or anything like that, if they are not in the hallways of the ship, it is a special effects shot. Every time. Yeah. Right? And... um And it is an especially gorgeous one that still holds up very well. Their simulation of the sun, their simulation of light. I mean, things that are are very difficult to do, right, even now, um, require tremendous amounts of computational power, produce some special effects that hold up to this day. Like, the the way that this movie looks, it doesn't look like a movie filmed in 2007, which the late 2000s are a notoriously bad time. For special effects in film, Uh, I revisited a lovely little film uh, from a few a a bit earlier, um, the the core, (laughs)
2: uh,
0: which we may talk about on here at some point because I have an unreasonable affection for the core as I do for all sort of totally out there disaster movies, but the core is a particularly bad one of those. (laughs) Uh, but yet it, it does have some things going on and the great thing about it is is that it was so badly received that the the writing and directing team have actually done interviews where they've defended it so like you can actually get a little bit of their insight into what they thought they were doing um, but that's 2003 right and it's doing some very similar things right there's a lot of um, uh, simulation of, of you know, dirt and rock and and things and and in magma and you know heat and heat waves and things like that. And you know that movie in two thousand three had a one hundred and fifteen million dollar budget, right? So nearly triple this yeah. film's budget for three or four years of difference in in, in special effects technology. And that movie looks like that movie looks like trash. By comparison, like you watch it now and it is nigh laughable how the special effects in that movie look. And this movie looks awesome. Looks like it could have been released direct to Netflix yesterday and and you wouldn't be able to tell. So the special effects on this are fantastic. They did a tremendous amount with the budget that they had. But I, I I'm like you. I don't think that every thoughtful science fiction film has to be has to be compared to 2001 even ones that involve things like deep space and you know spaceship travel right like
1: i mean those are, those are concerns know. that every science fiction writer and filmmaker and artist and anyone who approaches you know the genre of science fiction is going to have questions about those things so it's not it like i said it's just not fair to immediately Put them right in league with Kubrick when they may not even be trying the same things right
0: it's just I mean I know that film criticism a lot of it has to come from experience and so you know film critics are drawing on things they've already seen and you know three science fiction films that you can reasonably assume that a film critic has seen are 2001 Solaris because Tarkovsky is everywhere um, so 2001 Tarkovsky and you know Star Wars (laughs) like those are the ones that you can expect that they've seen you know they're they're not delving deeper most of the time into the genre apart from those you know ones that have crossed over already into critical consensus that these are good
1: now that we have the internet everyone's a critic
0: well I I guess that's what we're doing we're critics we're critics (laughs) um Um,
1: I do I I have to take a second and, and I did write a really lengthy article about this movie. Um, oh yes, plug that because it's it's really criticism.
0: good. Um, I will link that on the show notes this week. Uh, so that awesome. will be that'll be in the show notes. You have to um, send me the link to that again, and I'll I'll link that uh, because if you if they do want a more you know deep dive, I'll I'll let you kind of pitch it.
1: Yeah, it's I I used to teach world mythology, and I. Liked um, to take special time to teach Daedalus and Icarus. It's one of my favorite myths. Um, And it's one that sort of persists in pop culture and especially our our visual lexicon in pop culture. Um, So I taught this film alongside uh, Daedalus and Icarus to talk about how the illusion, illusion with an A, of Icarus is... um, Still very present in especially filmmaking. Um, so I wrote an article. I put it up on Medium because that's where you put all your writing when it goes to die. Um, sure. I put an article up on Medium called "Beyond the Extremes," where I talk about rhetoric and the Icarus illusion in sunshine. And <clears throat> it is it is a very deep dive, <laughs> a little bit deeper than probably most people would be up for. And I wish I understand. But it's essentially the the lecture, kind of a concentrated version of the the lecture that I gave over Sunshine and Icarus. Mm-hmm. Um, just talking about, you know, the film's visual metaphors, the storytelling, um overall, just how it interacts with the mythology of Daedalus and Icarus, um, how it takes from other portrayals of Icarus in pop culture. It's it's a lot, but if you like film criticism, you know, do check it out.
0: Yeah, for sure. They... Um, I mean, talk. A l- I, I guess we need to talk about that. Is that um, you know we've mentioned Alex Garland's name a lot. Uh, Garland has worked with Danny Boyle frequently. He's his first screenwriting credit is for *The Beach*, uh, mm-hmm. the Danny Boyle directed, Leonardo DiCaprio Arts. starring *The
1: clone's Horror.
0: <laughs> exactly, um, which in and of itself is a a little bit of a sort of sci-fi bent film. Um, and so that was where Garland came into the industry. Uh, he also wrote 28 Days Later mm-hmm. and, uh, and its sequel, 28 Weeks Later, which is inferior, but I've come around on it more uh, in the time since it came out. Um, but now he has kind of gone off on his own. Uh, supposedly he sort of rescued the dread film, the more recent one with Carl Urban, which had been directed by someone else. That person still gets the directing credit on the film, but by all accounts, Garland kind of took over that movie when their, their vision started to clash and then he kind of took it in its own direction. And, and, you know, if that is true, he produced a film that I enjoy immensely. I think dread is a great movie. Um, And uh, he did do most of the script work for that. And then more recently he has done Ex Machina, which received a tremendous amount of attention. Um, it's, uh, it's got uh, Don Hall Gleason in it. It's got uh, pre-Star Wars, or maybe after the first one. I don't remember the timeline on that exactly, but uh, Poe Dameron uh, is, is in it. Uh, <laughs> or that guy's uh, name Oscar, is. <laughs> Oscar Isaac uh, oh, yeah. is in it. He plays uh, you know, a, a tech Billionaire who has unlocked artificial intelligence and has, of course, done terrible, terrible things with it and to it um, over the course of his, his derangement. Uh, he's been involved with a lot of different projects, but then he most recently released uh, Annihilation, which is an adaptation of a book series that I absolutely love, the Southern Cross trilogy by Jeff Vandermeer. Um, and this was kind of an amalgamation of like two of those books. Uh, starring Natalie Portman was yes. completely yeah <laughs>
1: <it's>
0: Padme um, <laughs> Padme, but, but um, was was completely destroyed with its release in the United States. Um, again, they decided to release a film that should have released on Netflix here in theaters, where it died quickly, and then released it in Netflix overseas where people would probably have gone to see it in theaters because generally thoughtful science fiction tends to do better in places like Britain than here. Um, So just completely terrible release and uh, nobody saw it, or if anybody did, um, it wasn't enough to matter. Uh, But it too, thoughtful science fiction, carefully constructed, a little bit horrific, right? Uh, Sort of all of those things that obviously seem to be right up Alex Garland's alley. And so, garland is in my opinion i do i do not think he is a great writer uh, but i think he is extremely good and he's extremely good at what he chooses to do like his his projects that he picks and he chooses to focus on he generally is able to develop in really great ways Uh, i actually need to watch he has a show on hulu right now called devs uh, starring Mm, nick offerman which my which my wife has watched the entirety of, and she says it's brilliant. Uh, I have not had the chance to do it yet. She sort of started an episode, we watched a little bit of it together, and then she took off and was like, oh, well, I'm watching this. And she watched the entire thing, so it's awesome. So I still have yet to watch that, but apparently it too sort of blends all of these you know, heady genres together. Um, so talk a little bit about some of the, the mythological components of this, right? Because when you choose the names for things in movies... Well, I do believe there's a lot of serendipity in that. You just kinda oh, this feels right. This feels far more purposeful.
1: Um I the ship is called the Icarus, which that stuck out to me the first time I saw the film because I cannot imagine what would possess. I mean, I know I know that NASA loves their their mythological and and, mm-hmm. and celestial names. But I cannot imagine the team that read the myth of Icarus and thought, let's name a spaceship after that. Because the, the crux of the myth is Icarus dies when he flies into the sun.
0: Right. The sun is his doom. Right? Yeah. There, is, there is nothing positive about it. Um, now, the, I guess, go ahead and cover the generalities of the myth. Because I think most people probably do have a misconception of what the Icarus myth is in terms of how it breaks down. So, um,
1: Well, truncating the, the first part, uh, Daedalus is an inventor. He is, um, he's made some mistakes, he's had some problems, and he is subsequently trapped inside one of his own inventions, which is a giant maze um, on an island. It's a labyrinth, and he is trapped in the middle of it with his son, and they have no means of escape, um, except for... A set of uh, wings that Daedalus creates. He's, you know, as an inventor, he invents, he invents wings, and he comes up with this very grand plan that he's going to make a set for him and a set for his son Icarus, and they're going to fly back home, and everything will be fine. Uh, and he warns Icarus, he says, you know, don't fly up too close to the sun, or the sun will melt the wax in your wings, because um, they're held together with. It's just wax. It's wax and feathers. Um, or it'll melt, and you'll you'll fall into the ocean and drown. If you fly too low, you'll you'll get waterlogged, and your wings will become too heavy, and you'll fall in the ocean and drown. Either way, you drown. So you need to stay in between. You fly right after me to so go go where I go. And uh, Icarus is young. He's excited. He doesn't really understand what he's been given by these magical wings. He puts them on. They make their escape. Um, During the escape, Icarus starts having way too much fun, and he flies up into the sky, up close to the sun. The wax melts, and he tumbles into the sea, and he drowns. Right. It's
0: sad. So Icarus, in many ways, is a rescuer, right? Like, his goal was to help his father. So there is that sort of core to the myth, but yet it is his enthusiasm. I mean, you know, m- myth was designed to teach core lessons of cultures, right? To help well, the people core, understand.
1: And the core lesson of, of Icarus is really that you should not aspire to be godlike, mm-hmm. and you should not spend you shouldn't waste your life doing nothing either if you if you look at that you know core message that Daedalus gives you in the myth live between the extremes it means do what you're told do what's expected of you and everything will be fine
0: yeah it's 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 a, a mythology of moderation right? yeah this is... and
1: that that's very much in keeping with the greek um gods and they're sort of like hey you know you're mankind you need to keep to what we tell you to do right? and we're the gods and we'll take care of all of the crazy stuff
0: yeah the gods um, were allowed excess but humans yeah. were expected to tow a much you know much larger line
1: um, so one of the things in the, the essay the article that I wrote um, that I think the film sort of hinges on is this idea of mankind having some sort of godlike ascension Mm-hmm. Like, do we deserve to be as powerful as gods? Do we right. deserve the powerful, uh, the ability to restart the sun, the ability to control the sun? You know, something that doesn't mm-hmm. seem to have any to sort
0: change, of... to change the ebb and flow of nature itself, right? Yeah. To to reverse the course of a nat of, of a, ostensibly a naturally occurring event.
1: Um. So I don't know. I to me that's a very that question in of itself it's something that pops up a lot in mythology especially greek mythology it focuses so much on um the idea that mankind is always trying to capture the power of the gods you, know, you look at the myth of prometheus um that we're very interested in being godlike and having that kind of power, but it's always restricted. And there always seem to be dire consequences anytime we have that kind of power. And this movie is interesting because it it posits that maybe not. Maybe we should be godlike. Maybe we Mm -hmm. do have this great power. Maybe we do have the ability to control nature to some extent. Um, because the film has that resolution of Kappa, you know, reaching out and literally touching the sun. Right. Um, you know, and they, and interestingly, they never speak of Icarus other than to talk about the ship.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's never mentioned, um, in any significant way, you know, in a film like this, we might expect, you know, a character to be like, Hey, let me tell you the myth of Icarus. Yeah. I don't know if you're familiar Right. Like they're sitting around the table or a character's at like an emotional low point and be are like, we're flying too close to the sun. And right? like that's get that, the
1: kind of thing that would have put me off forever.
0: Exactly. Like, yeah. Like it's so on the nose. But this just kind of lets that be a background because the film is dealing with ideas. Right. We're just asking yeah. questions here. And the question <laughs> is, can a man be a god? And should yeah. we ever have that ability? And, and in the, the arc of several of the characters, from Seal or Searle to Kappa to Pinbacker, we see different interpretations of that. And, and that's what I, when we talk about shallowness in the film, that for me, even if it's not articulated by some of the critics who, who sort of parroted that, I think that's why. It's because these characters are not necessarily fully realized characters. They are archetypes that have been put into positions to create tension that then speaks to ideas, right? That's kind of the way I've always interpreted it, right? Like it's not important that Kappa has a family. You feel nothing for those people because Kappa is really an every man who gets a moment of glorious connection. Yeah. Right. And, and like, honestly, that is, for me at this point, that is a hallmark of Alex Garland's ideas and his scripts. This is His characters often are archetypes that exist to perform a story function and allow him to either espouse an idea or explore an idea and not necessarily exist as characters. So when they make a decision, it's not always clear. If they make a decision we don't expect, we can't necessarily understand why. Right? Like, those things aren't always present for us. And that may be why something like Dread works really well is because you don't need that with that character. Right. Right? Like, he is that he is that by design. Um, so maybe that's that's kind of it. But uh, I see a very similar thing in Ex Machina. Uh, the Southern Cross trilogy is perfect for that because the characters in the Southern Cross trilogy are unnamed. They are the biologist, the psychologist the security expert, you know, et cetera, right? The lighthouse keeper, like...
1: they're quite literally just stand-ins. They
0: are ciphers and stand-ins for ideas and qualities, right? And characteristics, right? The captain is brave and bold. Kappa is...
1: And that's that's really where I I took... That's where I took a lot um, when I wrote the article, was just that each character sort of represents more an idea... Than a person mm-hmm. necessarily yeah, it's almost um, a
0: philosophical round table, you know, like that's really more exactly what, what it is
1: um like i f- I felt that the film focuses in on mace, Kappa, and Cassie as the three main characters,
0: yeah, definitely, which, by the end Th- those are the characters that are left standing,
1: yeah um, and they have you know the most significant deaths, they have significant screen time, they have you know the most interaction with each other um and they cut to me they represent you know the uh, every man perspective sorry I tapped out for a second mm. the every man perspective and then mace would be like your logos and cassie would be your pathos because right, they the so very starkly represent those two modes of rhetoric um so much so that they lack a little bit of, of warmth and character as people, but they work very well as devices. <laughs> I thought right. it was interesting.
0: <laughs> yeah, and they and I again, I think that's where the shallowness complaint comes from, is that they feel like devices more than, than people. And, and that's a, a legitimate complaint, but again, I think that's, to a certain extent, it's by design. I don't think they're really... I think the character comes through and why they had the actors coalesce as a unit beforehand is so that much like alien, you feel that these characters have history, but that history is all background for what they're doing right now. Right. Right. What, what came before just makes you feel like you kind of know them and you're in the middle of an existing, you know, sort of set of relationships. And then I guess a lot of these films that choose that amongst their, you know, ensemble, ensemble cast, It lives and dies by how well you're able to fill in the gaps in between satisfactorily. And here, maybe they don't. But I don't think it really affects the film. Uh, I guess we can hit the names real quick, um, because this does have some interesting names that should grab our attention. Uh, Obviously, Kappa, uh, the main character, uh, who is the only one that's billed in the credits as having a first name. Right, He's Robert Kappa. Everybody else is just last names. uh, Or first names in Cassie's case. Trey <clears throat> but um, you know kappa is, is an interesting one it's a, a Greek uh, word that is, references specifically the tenth star in a given constellation um, which I, I kind of thought was interesting right that the that his name itself has a sort of connection to the stars right which I thought was kind of cool um, obviously the ship is called Icarus we have Searle um which which doesn't have any specific connection that um you know I could I could ascertain it reminds me a little bit of John Sayles uh, another um you know famous filmmaker that I'm a, a big fan of but kind of
1: sounds like seer
0: yeah it's 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 got some some sound alike words that that sort of connect to it um but uh Canada, as we mentioned, is probably an Acura reference um i also imagine cool and it's just a cool sounding name and then, of course, Michelle Yeoh is uh Corazon the heart uh who she in the film she does occupy that space, you know she's sort of a peacemaker who tries to keep people together um so I mean again, you can kind of see garland working to you know sort of build these um build a little bit of background for the characters with their names and, and how they sound and, and how we respond to them. Um and uh I I've always liked them. I, I think that it's a, a cool, you know, as a as a person who writes myself, coming up with names for characters is a really challenging thing. <laughs> and it's <laughs> you know using it,
1: names that are sort of symbolic almost or or that at least have, you know, symbolic connotations to them. Um That, that's really useful when you have such a large cast. Yeah. You know, they have memorable names. They have names that you can associate with the characters, that you can associate with, you know, the people. um, That kind of helps keep straight all of the different actors. Because there are a lot of people in this movie. I mean, it is an ensemble.
0: It is an ensemble cast. There's nobody else in this movie except for those people, but... The core group is large, right? It's it's really the equivalent size of Alien, um, yeah. you know, prior to the the murders, and the dying. <clears throat> but um, you know, it's it's a, a lot of people to juggle, and again, talking about a very limited budget for what this movie is trying to do, um, which you know we can talk a bit about production design. We've already kind of hit on it quite a bit, but this is a, a beautifully designed film, and not just the special effects. The sets are great. The ship feels very realistic it feels in most of its cases obviously it flares out and opens up in certain spaces and they've got room to move but you know the ceilings are low the hallways are tight you know it has that submarine uh real military you know feel to it like if if nasa was going to build a ship to do this within the next 30 or 40 years what would it look like, right? It's, it's not going to be 2001 with their space recliners and, and, you know, hot drink service. You know, it's, it's going to be something far more, you know, technological and, and yeah. constrictive. And you, you we, really get that, that impression, and it, it's very good.
1: We don't put much thought into the comfort of our astronauts. No, it's
0: no, more I about mean, it's
1: getting them into space.
0: That's why most of them are military, right? Because yeah. they're, they're comfortable with being uncomfortable. And uh, you certainly get that here, right? You know, we do get the the sci-fi conventions of, like, the hollow room and the uh, the observation room and things like that, where you can kind of flare out a bit and have a bit more space, but everything else is very tight, very compact. I also love the way that they're all dressed, because <laughs> you can tell that they are a couple of years in into a journey. No, but, you know, Harvey still wears his uniform, right? But
1: that is very much that character.
0: Right, like that tells you something about him. Everybody else is like t-shirt, sweatpants, um, you know, all of it looks kind of ratty. They've all been wearing the same stuff. Nobody gives a crap about Everyone's impressing sweaty anybody. Everyone's all greasy. Yeah, yeah there's a ton of face sweat in this movie because uh, it's, it's cramped and it's uncomfortable and, and they're just all trying to make it through this, right? And, and that, I think, does a lot to sort of establish the world. And that's what good production design should do. Right, it should fit seamlessly in with what is going on with the characters and what's going on around them uh the other thing I think we should note and and I guess we're kinda of getting close to wrapping up, but the other thing I think we should note is the music mm-hmm. of this film John Murphy uh, which is John Murphy from the band and underworld. underworld and I love and, underworld it's oh yeah huge and band. um and Danny Boyle had worked with him previously on other projects, but this soundtrack in particular is really something special like it is so beautiful so listenable you mentioned already just the sound design in general being really memorable very well done you know that kind of constant low hum of a ship in motion you know that the stuff that people who have done science fiction before they kind of consider in terms of their soundtrack all of those things are there and great but the music which is not everywhere in this film there are prolonged moments of silence in this movie with no music whatsoever which is a great choice i think more movies in space should try and build their soundtracks around that um you know the the silence of space but this movie more than than most i think just nails the soundtrack uh it's it's a bit it's it's mostly electronic right but it's it's very beautiful and subtle and quiet Uh, it's one that i listen to very frequently and that fans had to clamor to have released um they did not release the soundtrack for this film when it came out and it was uh, like a year and a half later that murphy basically he released a chunk of it online just himself on his website because there was so much demand to have some of the tracks so he mixed down some of them and, and threw them up and then eventually they were able to get a full, you know, sort of soundtrack release where he went back and assembled them into songs. Because a lot of it's just tones, right, and sort of tonal pieces and melodies, right? You can, you can tell that it wasn't really designed to be like, you know, this isn't John Williams, where it's like, oh, here's the theme. Here's Kappa's theme. You know, it's not, it's not that kind of thing. But it's, it's very, very good. It establishes mood brilliantly.
1: Sparse
0: yeah, it just, it feels perfect for what this film is really trying to do. Um, so it's, it's one that's still pretty heavily in my rotation, to be honest. And a lot of people point to it now as a, a really sort of Titanic soundtrack. Like this is, this is huge and was super important for, you know, movies of this budgetary level and how their soundtracks are handled now. So, um, I I really can't say enough about it and if you can you know if you subscribe to a music service where you can go and and hunt around for stuff that's older I would look up Sunshine by John Murphy because it's it's really cool. Um you know watch the movie first so you can hear it in its context before listening yeah. to it independently but um man it's it's just awesome like pretty much all the way through. Um all right well any other sort of issues in our deep dive that you would want to want to touch upon?
1: Um not issues, I love this movie. i love i i just I still love watching it i I usually get tired of the movies that i I taught, and I was afraid that when I added this to a syllabus that i would I would get tired of it and mm. eventually it would become one of those like I used to call them school movies where it's like I don't want right. to watch that that's a school movie It's a
0: school movie I watch that every year, yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, it's like I have to watch that at least you know four times a day for like three days every year um but this film is one that i still pull off the shelf and i still watch on a fairly regular basis like it's one of those good sick day movies um and like i said you know i i wrote that article about it that just kind of manifested you know i don't i don't have a lot of clear inspirational films that like get me to that motivate me to write like that so there's mm. got to be something to the film if it inspires that kind of discussion.
0: Yeah, for me. and again, this is one that has certainly found a sort of second life on home video, although it's it's not terrifically easy to find. Um, I hunted around on some streaming services to see it if it was available just out of curiosity, and it's really not. You could rent it or buy it, of course, but as far as like free streaming, like Netflix, or Amazon Prime, no. Um, and the, the Blu-ray release, it has not been reissued. There was an initial release back in 2008, and as far as I know, that's still the only one um, that you can find. So it's it's not, you know, Boyle is a successful enough director that his movies will kind of always be around. But um, it it is not easy to come by these days. Um, so you may have to hunt around a bit to find a copy of it. Like I said, it's on Prime Video for 7 bucks to buy it in base HD. So, I mean, that's not unreasonable if you uh, can stream your, your movies. But uh, finding a physical copy might be a bit of a challenge. Um, but, uh, all right, well, let's move into our, our One Thing segment. So what is one thing that you think might have changed the course of this particular film, right? Like, as we said, it, it was not critically hated. There were certainly critics who had issues with it. Um, but it found very little success in the, the open market, right? People did not seem to connect with or resonate with this film at the time. So what might shift that?
1: I feel like... I don't mind the action-oriented scenes, the, the couple of them that exist with Pinbacker, but if if I were to change something about the film, I guess I would edit the action out of those. I would, you know, maybe take the knife away from him, turn mm. him more into a creepy stalking presence than really an active threat to the mission. Mm-hmm. Um, other than, like, you know, decoupling the, the ships from each other, that's... Yeah, that makes sense. Sure, he'd um, become a
0: gremlin who's just kind yeah. of causing problems. For sure, yeah.
1: But but where he becomes this antagonist, you know, you could probably just remove that and have most of those concerns addressed easily.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I think that is certainly and that's the weakness that I, I saw called out most frequently, is that when Penbacker becomes this instead of the tension of the film being centered around this very large and and somewhat complicated idea of restarting the sun, saving humanity, this very big goal to being staying alive from the creepy radiation man. That's, (laughs) that's where
1: radiation, creepy
0: (laughs) radiation man. And it's, and it's shot that way, right? Like it's shot as if his, the radiation from his body is, is basically warping the film, right? It's
1: like staring into the sun. Yeah. It's a really,
0: it's a really cool effect. Um, There was another, have you seen blood machines? No. Uh, it's on Shudder. It's it's like a half hour long, like experimental French sci fi film. It's very strange. Mm. I'm I'm not gonna recommend it, but um, <laughs> it but they there's a like a, a laser gun fight halfway through it. But it's <laughs> I know it's it's ridiculous. But they actually tried to simulate the effect that if you were really you know throwing like a high radiation beam at another person. That if you were really trying to film that, that the way that the chemical reaction would take place inside the piece of film as that light and radiation hit it, that it would cause these, you know, almost like quark loops as, as a quark breaks open and you can see the, the movement of those like, and, and they kind of have this rippling effect that you can tell is not part of the effect of the beam. It's actually like in the frame. And it's all done digitally. I mean, they didn't shoot it on film, obviously. And there's no way to simulate that. But but it's just a real interesting look. Uh, the Corridor Digital guys did a, a video on it not too long ago. And they had some thoughts on it, too. Um, but it felt like Boyle was trying to replicate, okay, this guy is is literally just exuding radiation at, at deadly levels. If we were shooting him with film, what would it do to that film? And you're getting this kind of, like, rippling crazy effect. And it's it's very cool. Um, But yeah, I mean, once he becomes the focal point of the tension that it's, oh, it's about stopping Pinbacker or being stopped by Pinbacker, the film sort of just detours in a way that didn't need to, right? The the larger tension of Kappa making sure the bomb gets to the sun is probably enough. And you just put more barriers in his way that ultimately force him to, you know, make the sacrifice to go down with the bomb. I think, I guess I'll say way into mine. I had two things. I think you could have solved the ending of this movie by letting Cassie live that she stays on the Icarus too. Kappa gets in the spacesuit, so we we deal with the depressurization somehow right um but she is able to avoid it. Maybe she's inside the holograph room and there's a way to lock that down. It's like a secondary something you mention it halfway through the movie and then it comes back here, whatever. But Cassie lives and is back on the ship. Kappa makes the noble sacrifice, which again, I think is thematically appropriate for who he is and what he's trying to do. He makes the ultimate sacrifice. He jumps down to the bomb. He's communicating back and forth with Cassie, even if Pinbacker's still in the movie at this point. You know, Cassie maybe sees, so maybe she still has camera connection and she can direct him to take care of Pinbacker, whatever. But you leave Cassie on the ship. And Cassie does get to begin the journey home alone. Um, we know it's not going to be easy, but then instead of Kappa reading out the message, it's Cassie reading out the message at the end. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe it's even the message that Kappa sent, and she's just discovered it um, or or whatever. but like she's the one who sort of narrates that because I think why audiences probably rejected this initially is there's no hope for the characters that we've spent all this time with right and so a lot of people and and this is an unfortunate reaction i don't agree with this reaction but i think a lot of people feel cheated after you have spent (laughs) an hour and a half with these characters growing to like them growing to care about their goals and struggles and then they're dead Right. Again, I don't care. I think that that's fine, especially if it fits with the story you're trying to tell. And this definitely does. Right. Like it's called the Icarus. They're going to burn up in the sun. That's what's going to happen. But I think you do, if you do want that mainstream audience to get on board, if you care about that, if you want that group to leave the theater and go, like, and go talk to their buddies at Costco the next day and say, oh, man, that sunshine was pretty good, you got to give them that they have to have that bit of hope that, you know, somebody's going to carry this thing forward. And and so that was one of the things that I thought could sort of fix
1: that. See, I'm the dark little friend who's like, no, everyone should die. In
0: no, world. no. I, again, that's everyone. not me. I'm not speaking from my perspective. But putting myself in the in the I'm a guy who likes the movies hat... Uh, you know the people who believe that Shawshank Redemption is the greatest film ever. Oh,
1: <laughs> have you ever seen a little movie called The Shawshank Redemption? Oh, uh,
0: the number of students in, that I've I've taught film who come to me and say like, oh, I, I'm a, I'm a film lover. I'm like, well, what's your favorite movie? Shawshank Redemption. I'm like, oh god. Yeah. Um, now, and that's coming from a person who I think the Shawshank Redemption is a great film. Frank Darabont is, an, is oh, a yeah. is a wonderful filmmaker, but that is. That but that is not what I would hold up as an example of high art in film, unfortunately. Um, but it, regardless, if you're trying to get a group that that, want, that has those types of feelings, you need to give them that. But the other half of that is, and uh, rarely do I say I want a movie to be longer. Uh, if anything, I think modern movies are too long. We have bloated read, runtimes. Read. Again, some films, it's, it fits, right? Epic films... I'll sit and watch the extended editions of Lord of the Rings anytime you want me to, man. That's three yeah. hours well spent, right?
1: And they still left stuff out.
0: Yeah, oh, totally. But most modern movies, I, I think we are missing the one hundred minute film, right? Yeah, like that. I'm is- it. Yeah, that is a target that I think more people should. And this movie does this. movie This is a one hundred and five ish minute movie. Um, but in this case, I think that it actually would benefit from about another 20 minutes. Mostly in the first act to further deepen characters, deal with some of that shallowness where the characters feel more archetypal than like quote unquote real people. A little bit more on the front end, a little bit more explanation about what they're trying to do and how it's going to work. Not a ton, but just a little. Uh, Some more discussions about the the trials and tribulations. Um, A lot of people I've seen comments that when they do introduce the other crew, and they do it with those bursts and flashes of other faces. I've actually read stuff from people that they didn't—they don't know what that is. Like, who are those people? Because they—they they didn't catch the clues earlier about the Icarus One crew oh. and who Pinbacker was.
1: I don't want to be mean, but I, people really
0: just—what is wrong with you? <laughs> people don't—people don't pay attention to that stuff, right? Like it. They don't. No wonder underst-
1: everybody likes Transformers. God, they, they don't
0: understand that if if the if the camera lingers on a thing, you're supposed to pay attention to it, right? And and I'm not trying to talk down to anybody, but like I've legitimately seen people confused because they don't realize that it's the crew recognizing these are all of the people of the Icarus One, and then they're showing you, you know, you're seeing their desiccated bodies now, but here was them full of life before, right? And they don't really grab that. I think a little bit more time on the front end, sort of more directly explaining that stuff, would probably deal with some of those things too. Uh, yeah. But mostly just a little bit more character time, and a, a little bit more lead up to the mistake, right? Where uh, BD Wong's character, um, you know, finally, you know, makes. There could the, have been the, more
1: deliberation about what they're going right, to do before yeah. they make that decision
0: right because that that all happens very quickly once it's introduced they basically are like okay we're doing it and then it happens and everybody goes to bed and then everybody wakes up after the change has been made and, the, and everything's wrong um which is you know interesting but I, I don't think i think they could have spent some more time on that and and probably been okay um but so that's that's kind of my thing is this is a movie that would actually benefit from 15 to 20 more minutes of the smaller more focused character stuff just to establish things just to talk about things situationally to lay groundwork for things that happen at the end with Pinbacker you know maybe even the captain says oh pinbacker he was a great captain but you know he was always so you know he was he was I always felt he was unstable or they were always, you know, like that's the kind of stuff that you kind of need to justify where you go later. Um, Whereas, you know, your solution of just cutting it is probably the simpler one, but if they felt the need to have it, I I think they needed to justify it more. You know. I agree with that. So that's kind of where I was at it, but I really think most of the film's bad reception could have been dealt with just by keeping Cassie alive. And having the Icarus too begin its, its a run back.
1: Everybody likes Remember? it when the girl lives.
0: Yeah, I mean it's an unfortunate trope. I mean, and honestly, if you turn the back, you know, the last third of the movie into a horror film, you, nobody's going to complain about having a final girl.
1: You know. Well, I will.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, let's wrap up. Uh, so, what is your failure piece score? So, just as a reminder, the failure piece score is zero to one hundred. One hundred being so bad that it's actually pretty good. Um, So where do you fall with Sunshine? I know you've already said that you have an intense love of the film, as do I, but where would you please?
1: I'm going to put it in an 89 because it's above average. I wouldn't say it's it's like exceptional, you know, the best movie I've ever seen. I don't really necessarily feel that way about any of Danny Boyle's films.
0: Yeah, they all have issues. All of them have a couple of things that hold them back. Uh, I have a similar thing with 28 Days Later, once it gets to the military base that that movie falls apart yeah once they yeah. get to the military compound and we very see very similar <laughs> yeah and we get mired down with that group and everything that they're doing it just it just dead stops the movie for me and um,
1: thematically that's where it struggles too mm-hmm. um i you know the the soldiers christopher eccleston and his men i, I always kind of struggled with that as a a development in the script just as far as believability you know it seems like there's always that cult that group that bunch of depraved people who are focused on very similar goals and I kind of wondered if the movie needed that but mm-hmm. you know according to the public it it did yeah people so, didn't
0: react negatively to that one yeah maybe I mean, because I, there was more brain shooting I don't know but
1: and I I, I feel like for all of his films, they are they're ex they're exceptionally crafted, but they're just good movies. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's a good so. Way to I eighty nine. That that's where I'm at.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm definitely in the same ballpark. I I had it in eighty five. Um, again, it's it's very solid. I mean, this is the very definition of. I think it's it's overlooked. Unfairly so. I think there is really a lot to this movie to grab onto and to love. Um but at the same time it does have flaws and there will be things about it that you will probably find unsatisfactory. Um, you know, the ending is the most obvious one as as it makes a big shift into what feels like another genre or another type of film. But I I really don't think it's enough to spoil the entire experience, especially those those last few moments with Kappa as he's you know sort of descending into the sun, are so sort of glorious and I and interesting. Um, another film that I hope to talk about with you on here is uh, Darren Aronofsky's The Fountain, yeah. which uh, has a similar moment in it, um, a moment of of divine revelation and euphoria and and intense realization and and it's shot in some kind of similar ways um it might be an interesting you know counterpoint to talk about but that's another film that i actually i have a a sort of strange fondness for despite its extremely problematic nature as with all aronofsky films Uh, Mm -hmm. i mean aronofsky doesn't make likable movies i just don't think he cares to he made that ballerina movie (laughs) he did make the ballerina movie but that is not a movie that you're supposed to like i don't think and i don't think you're supposed to like i don't think you're supposed to like any of the people in black swan or any of the people that black swan is about
1: oh well that i mean (sighs) it wins there i didn't like anyone in the movie yeah but i did enjoy mm -hmm.
0: the movie uh black swan i'm uh pie even i I revisited pie not too long ago and and that's a movie
1: they have that in the horror section
0: yeah I, I don't know why. Is it Netflix
1: or whatever it's streaming on?
0: Whatever, yeah, whatever it's on. It's it's in a weird genre that I wouldn't have put it in. I mean, it certainly has horrific moments. I mean, the dude drills his own it, brain it, out. It, yeah, but,
1: no, absolutely. Um,
0: but yeah, Pies is is in that. Uh, obviously, no <laughs> Math Noah.
1: movie just doesn't strike me as horrific. I don't, <laughs> math, know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I find about, math horrible, but... <laughs> it's a lot about...
0: Jewish people doing math—it's it's really <laughs> horrific. It's like lots oh, of math. Okay,
1: math and then um, drill a hole in your
0: head. Is uncut gems in horror then? I don't know. <laughs>
1: um,
0: but the uh, Noah is another one. The Fountain is up there. Uh, mother, which—that's a rough yeah. one. Um, but anyway, so you know, I, I think this is a movie that is is very firmly in that that range of this is one that you might watch it and it might actually become one of your favorite things ever um, because there is just so much about it that is going like gangbusters and is so so good but it's mired by and brought down by a couple of strange choices here and there from you know that maybe glorified status so again i, I don't disagree with any of the reviews or any of the, the reviewers that had issues with it i think they're a bit overblown i think a lot of them are coming from unfair comparisons. But at the same time, it's not a perfect movie, but it is yeah. a thoroughly enjoyable one. And again, if you watch movies to see things you've never seen before, there is awesome stuff to see in this movie. Its representations of the sun are, are unbelievable and beautiful. The transit of Mercury sequence in the, the observation room is beautiful. Uh, the music in that one specifically. Absolutely. Glorious. I, absolutely great. So, you know, it's, it's one of those movies that I think is very much worth your time, but it will there will be parts that clunk out, unfortunately. Um, so it's a definite recommend from me. Uh, I'm getting the impression it's a recommend from you as well. Indeed. Very cool. So um, once again, we've come down on the recommend side of things. This is a, a great, great movie. One of the overlooked ones of the late 2000s. Um, maybe one of the overlooked ones from uh, from Boyle's career at this point. Um, and, and certainly worth a rewatch if you can get a hold of it. Uh, all right, so where can we find you on social media, Kate?
1: I am Baskinator on Twitter and the Baskinator on Instagram. You check me out.
0: Very nice. Um, best place to get a hold of me is at TBaskin on the Twitters. Uh, you can also get us as a group at F-Peace theater on Twitter or at FailurePeace at gmail.com if you've got any questions or inquiries. Um, all right, so we will see you next week. Uh, we've got another awesome episode planned and we've got a couple extra in the hopper as well so we certainly enjoyed you coming by listen to our conversation hope to hear from you soon if you have any questions but otherwise we'll see you next week